You said that if the Nuremberg principles were applied, every post-World War II president would be uh, indictable. That's probably true. Can we run uh, run down them real fast? What did Eisenhower do that you would indict him for? Eisenhower uh, overthrew the conservative nationalist government of Iran with a military coup. Uh, he overthrew the first and last democratic government in Guatemala by a military coup and invasion, leading to years of, uh, in Iran, it led to 25 years of brutal dictatorship, uh, finally overthrown in 79. In Guatemala, it led to massive atrocities, which are still continuing. That's after almost 50 years. Uh, in Indonesia, uh, this wasn't known until recently, but he conducted the uh, major clandestine terror operation of the post-war period up until Cuba and Nicaragua in an effort to break up uh, Indonesia, strip off the outer islands uh, where most of the resources are, uh, and uh, undermine the what was then considered as a threat of Indonesian democracy. Uh, Indonesia was too free and open. It was allowing a... Uh, political party of the poor to participate, and they were gaining a lot of ground. So that uh, uh, Eisenhower supported and helped instigate a military rebellion in the Outer Islands. Uh, this is just for starters. Now, these are all indictable offenses. What about Kennedy? Kennedy was one of the worst. Uh, All right, my name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, in just a few minutes, uh, we are going to be talking uh, to Sean Richman, who's a friend of mine and the author of this indispensable book uh, about uh, labor strategy, Tell the Bosses That We're Coming. Uh, after that, we're gonna be talking to current affairs editor, uh, Nathan J. Robinson, uh, about why he was, uh, was fired uh, from uh, from the Guardian, uh, and and what the situation is there. Uh, later on, of course, we've got David Griscom back this week. Uh, it's the last Griscom for a few weeks because uh, he's going to be going on kind of a road trip before you know settling back in in Texas uh, to uh, to talk, do outlaws and revolutionaries. Talk a little Rusty Kershaw. Uh, but uh, right now, I thought uh, we should uh, we should start with that. I'm joined, of course, uh, by our producer uh, Forrest. How's it going? Uh, and uh, we wanted to start with the uh, the Chomsky cold open today uh, in uh, recognition of President's Day uh, as a as a little reminder that um, you know, of course um, you know the uh, the most recent ex president was uh, just was just acquitted for the uh, relatively minor thing that he uh, he was accused of, but. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of line that uh, Republicans and, and some, um, you know, maybe even some contrary and more progressive people say that's like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't do the uh, indictment of the ex-president, you know, you should just move on. And uh, I have the, uh, I have the opposite position. I think they should do a mass trial for all of the ex-presidents. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my position on it too. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, the, the gulag segment where it was just everybody. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the, uh, yeah, that was the first time I was on, um, uh, TMBS, uh, there's, they're still doing the gulag thing. We did, uh, this was while, uh, the Ilhan Omar anti-Semitism controversy was, uh, was going on, which of course 
is very related to what we're going to be talking about with Nathan later. Uh, and uh, so we did a uh, uh, that Gulag segment was a uh, was a mass trial. You know, we we uh, symbolically sentenced quite a few people to uh, to the the Gulag um, for uh, for smearing Ilhan for for not defending her for just generally being terrible and excusable assholes. <laughs> I remember not being sure how to edit that. Like, <laughs> Michael was like, "Yeah, throw it up," and I'm like, "I like how much of it? Like all of it? Like <laughs> fair enough." Uh so have an okay uh, quarantine Valentine's Day. Yeah, um, I mean, at least the the start of it. Um, my girlfriend ended up in the ER. She had some. Uh, she, she, oh, thought she, she thought she might have had appendicitis and it turns out she didn't but yeah but up up until that <laughs> we actually we had, we had our first date um last valentine's day so it was like a yeah nice um yeah this is uh um this is my this was my eighth valentine's day with my wife but she uh, she gave me this time this uh t-shirt that i'm wearing it's the picture of Karl marx with the uh uh, yeah. seizing the means of production. Uh, so, you know, I got a, uh, I got a, a Jacobin subscription for, um, <laughs> that was my Valentine's day present. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that is the, uh, that is the perfect Valentine's day gift. I approve. Uh, nothing, yeah. says, nothing says love like Jacobin. I, 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 I never really subscribed because I was like, am I going to, you know, am I going to, you know, get paid and then give the money right back for uh for a subscription. And Maria was like, no, you need to have one to know what's going on. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, moving on from uh, Valentine's day to president's day. Um, so, you know, we talked, you know, Chomsky was just talking there very briefly about the indictable crimes of the various ex-presidents. Obviously, he'd, he'd just barely gotten started, you know, before that uh, two-minute clip was over. And, you know, he was just about to do Kennedy at the beginning of the Vietnam War, uh, among other things. Uh, and then, of course, you know, LBJ and Nixon, you know, are, are uh, the, the central villains behind the uh, millions were killed in first Vietnam, then Cambodia, uh, other places, uh, other places in the region. Um, you know, Gerald Ford, you know, oversaw the last part of that quasi genocidal uh, war in Southeast Asia. Uh, and again, among other things, uh, Jimmy Carter is uh, the one who's probably guilty of, of the least, but uh, that's also astonishing because he had, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter uh, oversaw the beginning of the arming and funding of the uh, Mujahideen. Yeah, first became the Taliban and Al Qaeda uh, when his um, when his national security advisor Zed Brzezinski, the father of Mika Brzezinski from MSNBC, <laughs> uh, said uh, that uh, he bragged that he they'd uh, lured the Russians into the Afghan trap. So you know, good job. Uh, Robert. Well, Jimmy Carter was the beginning of that, like, I mean, the humanitarian intervention streak that the Democrats have seemed to have since then with uh, the posturing about human rights. And then, you know, obviously it just becomes regular intervention once we're there. But yeah, it's right. that, that foundational belief that, you know, anything we do is good as long as we can justify it um, via moral grounds, I guess. 
instead of just being like, um, you know, instead of on, on capitalistic, like we need to overthrow communism grounds. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, not that there wasn't still some of that, but uh, yeah, well, Reagan came right after, but yeah, 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 yeah. But but uh, but Carter was the beginning, you know, because he introduced that human rights language uh, into uh, into UN for US foreign policy in a different way, even at the same time, of course, as he was doing things like propping up the Shah of Iran uh, and and funding like the worst fundamentalists in the world, and you know, in Afghanistan. Uh, while they were, you know, literally fighting a war where I, I think one of their slogans, I remember reading once, uh, referring to the Soviets was there teaching our women how to read. Uh, so, you know, not not great champions of human rights, but yeah, yeah. They, they certainly introduced the uh, the language uh, of um, of that kind of human rights interventionism that, of course, Reagan uh, was the one who massively oversaw the funding of the uh, the Mujahideen, uh, famously compared them to the founding fathers, uh, you know, sold uh, you know sold arms uh, to uh, to to Iran uh, as as part of the arms for you know for hostages scandal. Those, those brave those brave freedom fighters. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. At the end of uh, what was it, Rocky Three or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. To, to, to <laughs> dedicated to the yeah <laughs> people of Afghanistan, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, and then, to, of course, diverted that money from uh, the arms sales to uh, the mullahs to fund uh, like absolutely depraved terrorists in Nicaragua who were engaged in a campaign to overthrow uh, the um, the Sandinistas who you know came to power at the end of the seventies, won an internationally supervised democratic election in nineteen eighty four, uh, and the Contras, uh, you know, death squads being funded by Reagan. You know, we're we're doing, we're uh, committing just unspeakable crimes against what were euphemistically called soft targets. You know, yeah, nuns, stuff like that. Uh, uh, it's 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 interesting to go through this history. Um, I spent the weekend, or a lot of like a big chunk of the weekend, working on a, a documentary um, that we're doing for Jacobin. That um, it, it's I, I don't want to talk about it too much, but it's that it's related to like the Jakarta method, and uh, so kind of. I've spent the I spent the entire weekend. Of course, you know, happy weekend on my end, going through uh, <laughs> going through a lot of personal stuff at the Jakarta method. Yeah. Yeah. Going through uh, a lot of path clips and like watching. I found like uh, they had like a documentary about Arbenz getting overthrown by Eisenhower, and um, they have like a lot of actual footage from like the fifties that I was pretty blown away by. You know, like like just just the fact that it exists on on such a casual basis and it wasn't just like you know it wasn't just somebody's like home footage you know what i mean like it was like government government footage yeah yeah of course that was going on um you know through you know certainly by the period we're talking about uh then uh after after reagan there's george hw bush former head of the cia uh and uh they did a a uh well they've done two parts so far of a chapo series about him where, you know, some of the conspiracy stuff, I'm not sure I buy, but they have a, but like, I think they are absolutely right about how he was there everywhere when terrible things were being done, you know, by, you know, the so-called intelligence community, et cetera, that yeah. you know, they call the Zelig of evil. Uh, and then, um, and when George H.W. Bush was president, of course, that's the invasion of Panama. Uh, that that's uh, that's the uh, first Gulf War, including uh, the uh, you know like a, some really spectacular war crimes, uh, the Highway of Death, uh, which is you know exactly about what it sounds like. 
uh, then uh, then there's Bill Clinton who oversaw eight years of, of sanction, you know, like of uh, of sanctions and bombings in Iraq uh, that, you know, famously his secretary of state, Madeleine Albright, uh, was told that, you know, it killed uh, half a million uh, Iraqi children. And, you know, and she said it was worth it. Uh, that's uh, that's that's Clinton. That's a very quick version of Clinton. There's a lot more yeah. that we can talk about there. Before, before she became uh, Anna Kasparian's best friend, and they had that great, not at all tense, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. very friendly <laughs> questions that that I'm sure she was happy to be asked. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then um, and then of course uh, there's uh, George W. Bush, who I hope that uh, nobody who watched or listened to this show uh, has. Uh, has a uh, short enough memory to uh, to not know, you know what what was what happened there. I mean, like in some ways, is the worst of uh, certainly the last several that we talked about: uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, beginning of the drone war. Uh, he didn't war. send any mean tweets, though. You know, he said, <laughs> yeah. be, nice, "Be nice to your Muslim neighbors," and you know, what a guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, even at the same time as there was mass surveillance and detention of American Muslims, there was well, they, snatched, they snatched in the city Muslims off the street um, in the immediate aftermath of nine eleven. There's actually been quite a bit of work done. Uh, both, both, uh, you know, both the FBI and NYPD was just able to kind of just snatch these Muslim immigrants off the street, walking around, um, like, and bring them in for questioning. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, and then, of course. Um, Again, you know, the invasion of Iraq, which is like the most significant event of like the last 50 years of this history, punched a hole in the Middle East that's led to a cavalcade of bloodshed and chaos that's still going on, uh, overthrew uh, the democratically elected president of Haiti, uh, literally sent U.S. Marines to escort him out of the country, uh, openly supported the attempted coup in Venezuela, uh, etc., uh, Obama, you know, uh, dramatic expansion of the drone war, uh, operation in Libya that uh, that plunged that country into so much chaos that there have been reports of open air slave markets. Uh, Trump, uh, who is uh, oftentimes he's he's viewed as as some sort of right wing isolationist, total bullshit, nothing of the kind. I'm actually uh, there's been a lot else going on. We haven't had a chance to work on it lately, but I'm doing an article with Gene Bajalan about this for Jack. And then uh, Trump was was absolutely no kind of dove, uh, to put it mildly. Yeah. He doubled, doubled the rate of drone strikes in Yemen. Uh, he uh, backed out of the Iran deal, assassinated Soleimani. He dropped a weapon called the uh, you know Moab. So uh, that's uh, uh, massive ordinance, you know, air bomb or you know, or colloquially, mother of all bombs. In Afghanistan, which uh, there are, you know, there are reports from an Afghan member of, of, of parliament about uh, about reports they got of, of civilian deaths, even if it didn't, you know, even if you assume for the sake of argument that's false and it miraculously avoided civilian deaths, I'd argue that dropping a bomb that by its nature, you know, like a bomb that massive that just makes a mockery of any claim to care about civilian deaths, that's a war crime by definition. Yeah. And then, of course, that brings us to the current guy who's only had a couple of weeks and there have been uh, some, you know, there have been some positive signs. I, I, don't, I don't think we should, you know, I mean, I don't think we need to be black and white about this. Uh, but also there's been some discouraging ambiguity about whether he's even doing the thing that he seemed to be doing that was best, which is uh, meaningfully ending uh, U.S. involvement in the genocidal Saudi war in Yemen. Yeah. Hold on. I have the... Uh... 
We're also stepping up our diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, a war which has created humanitarian and strategic catastrophe. I've asked my Middle East team to ensure our support for the United Nations-led initiative to impose a ceasefire, open humanitarian challenge, and restore long dormant peace talks. This morning, Secretary Blinken appointed Tim Lenderking, a career foreign policy officer, as our special envoy to the Yemen conflict, and I appreciate him doing this. Tim has, a life, has lifelong experience in the region, and he'll work with the UN envoy and all parties of the conflict to push for a diplomatic resolution. And Tim's diplomacy will be bolstered by USAID working to ensure that humanitarian aid is reaching the Yemeni people who are suffering un and undurable, unendurable devastation. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen. So that's, that's the key. That's the key. key word yeah. got. The same uh, time, Saudi so it's uh, offensive operations, uh, which again, this this could be you know we're very early early days yet. Uh, you know, it's it's all it's you know they're encouraging signs, but there is some discouraging ambiguity there. Uh, no, more, about, uh, no more mean tweets, and we always use the pronouns now for people. We yeah, follow. yeah, but I mean, oh. but, but like, <laughs> like even like substantively, it's it's a little unclear whether, um, what like whether this this just means that there are certain forms of U.S. assistance uh, that are that are being withdrawn, or uh, or whether there's really going to be a, a 180 in the attitude of the United States towards this war. Yeah, well, I mean, there's never really, I mean, our role in this war has always been incredibly unclear because it's not one of the ones that we are known for being like a, like an active part of, you know what I mean? Like we've been less involved, I'd say in, in Yemen than we have in, you know, Afghanistan or, um, I mean, Iraq when we're there, like it, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is arms sales. A lot of it is, um, you know, support for the Saudis. A lot of it is yeah, Saudi, Saudi refueling and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of it is, um, you know, I mean, selling them arms, knowing full well where, like, what they're going to be used for, you know, helping them blockade um, the Yemeni, like, the, the Houthis in. Like, there's just, there's so many, like, so, you know, even even if you get rid of all, you know, offensive support, like, it's still, like, that still leaves a, a wide open hole. Um, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot of wiggle room for, for uh, ambiguity there about what you could call any defensive support. And and what would count as uh, as doing that, which is, um, you know, I, I think I think is worth you know is worth keeping an eye on because uh, you know we saw certainly like in the war in Iraq, we saw like twenty things that were treated as big declarations at the end of U.S. presence. You know, before you know, like while there was still some level of fighting going on in Iraq. Now, obviously, Yemen's not Iraq in terms of the level of direct U.S. involvement. Uh, but there's still some ambiguity there. And, and something we were talking about a little bit before we went on the air is we should also acknowledge that uh, I don't think that this show can be accused of being too soft on Biden, you know, but uh, but I, I think that without giving Biden undue credit, we could also say that it's a little um, that some of what's going on here seems to be pushback from within uh, the uh, the military bureaucracy 
which is something that uh, if Bernie Sanders had just become president, he you know he would be facing on this issue. Yeah, and it, and it would be you know it's it's pretty impossible to to dismantle at least in a short amount of time. I mean, just the holdover from you know what I mean, like people who are career military officers that have an active involvement in in multiple you know um, multiple administrations. Like you can't really dismantle all of that that fast. You can give directives, but like. It, there's wiggle room in directives. And and this kind of um, brings up what I wanted to, uh, the quote I wanted to read, which is from um, the the general that Biden has in charge of this. And it's from, uh, um, it's from like a Middle East conference, like foreign policy conference. And um, she says, uh, we will, we will, uh, however, we will also continue to support the Saudis as they defend themselves. So, you know, over the last several weeks, a number of attacks have been launched out of Yemen against Saudi Arabia. We will help the Saudis defense against, defend against those attacks by giving them intelligence when we can about those attacks. But we will, what we will not do is help them strike, continue to conduct offensive operations into Yemen, so that won't continue. And that leads to a long-term relationship that we want to have with the Saudis. Nothing that has been said or done means we're not going to continue to engage the Saudis and our other coalition partners. Yeah, right. So again, that's 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 not super encouraging in terms of a uh, of a clear and and unambiguous, uh, you know, you like end to any U.S. involvement to in these ongoing yeah. crimes. And, well, the other, the other thing it leaves open, I mean, it leaves severely open, is is what the uh, intelligence community is best at, which is fabricating, you know, these these threats that they get from from certain people. I mean, in some cases, I'm sure. You know, they're they're real people, like real informants telling them this. But, you know, um, you know, on a lot of occasions, they they end up going, well, you know, we had evidence that there was a threat coming and we couldn't let our allies get you know knocked down by it. So next thing you know, like like then we're in a, an, an offensive war because of that. You know what I mean? Like and, and it's not even verified information necessarily. Yeah, right. Like the line, uh, if you're still openly taking a side and you say, well, we'll do uh, we'll support in these ways. We won't support in offensive ways. I think in practice, those lines are a lot blurrier than they might be if you're just kind of stating a policy in the abstract. And it's also important to, to recognize. I want to bring Sean in on in just a minute, but uh, that. When we're talking about, um, you know, the the pressures that are being faced here, which are very real pressures that, you know, that you, that whoever was president right now would be facing. But this is also part of why we care about who's president, because in the face of those pressures, you know, you, you want somebody who you're at least confident, robustly shares your goals when it comes to things uh, like their attitude towards rolling back U.S. empire, which anybody who watched uh, the episode we did a few weeks ago with Katie Halper and Rania Kalik and uh, Daniel Bester, where we did kind of a deep dive on Biden's foreign policy history, knows that, you know, obviously you, you can't be confident of that in, uh, in Biden's case, uh, which is uh, the last thing I want to do before we bring Sean on is just play a little clip. So the... Uh, Thursday episode uh, for uh, for patrons this week uh, is a interview with Jacobin deputy editor uh, Mikey Utrecht, who people have uh, anybody who regularly watches this channel has has seen uh, uh, Mike a smiling face on uh, on many occasions. Uh, but it's about a article that he wrote for the Nation uh, about the uh, great Mike Davis. Uh, but uh, before uh, we we got into the Mike Davis stuff. Uh, we we talked a little bit about an article that he wrote for uh, for Jacobin, 
And I want to play just a couple minutes of that part of the conversation. I'm joined by Jack, the deputy editor of Mikey Utrecht. Uh, and in just a moment, we're going to be talking about an article that you wrote for The Nation about Mike Davis. Uh, but uh, first, uh, for uh, just a minute, I want to uh, talk to him about this, which is something that happened a few years ago, of course, during the 2016 election cycle, but which he just wrote about for Jackman. In the last debate, I believe in her book. Very good book, by the way. In her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia, when the United States bombed that country, overthrew Prince Sihanouk, created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So. Count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. <laughs> so that that came up in my Facebook memories on, I believe it was Friday. And I, of course, remember the line, Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I've quoted that many times, but I hadn't watched the full video in a while. And when I watched it, I was just like, I was in my apartment and I was here with my roommate, Sean, and I was just like, yeah! I was just so fucking hyped watching that because I forgot how much of a smackdown it was. It was so good. And I just like, I dropped what I was doing for like two hours. Like, I have to write this because this is like one of the greatest moments. As I say, you know, half jokingly, half kind of not. If this is the only thing that came out of Bernie's campaign, it's all fucking worth it because this is, and this is not like, Stop me if I'm ranting too much. No, 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 yet. Sorry, I'm just getting hyped just watching it again. Um, you know, it's Bernie Sanders. His his agenda was mostly a, a domestic social democratic agenda, right? right? It's like Medicare for all. It was we're going to get free college for everybody. We're going to get rid of medical debt, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, some people sometimes said, "Well, Bernie, yeah, that sounds good, but like, what about American imperialism?" And it's true, he could have talked about American imperialism more. But it's not like he didn't talk about American yeah. imperialism ever. And it is clear to me that Bernie has a, a bone-deep anti-imperialism that you can see from the very beginning of his political career as mayor of Burlington, um, whether it's like using that office for uh, uh, to support the movement for solidarity with, against U.S. intervention in Central America. Mm -hmm. um, this, this is who this guy is. Um, and so, uh, again, he could have done more. He could have talked about things a little differently, but like, there were these moments of like anti-imperialist smackdown that we got from Bernie Sanders. And thank God, because who would have ever thought that we would have, we'd see this on a, on a Democratic debate stage? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in 2016, you know, for the most part, you know, he wasn't that eager to, uh, to talk about this stuff. He, he'd sort of do this weird thing where you talk about the King of Jordan. You know, he yeah. uh, loved talking about the King of Jordan. King of Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> and and he kind of pivot back to talking about the big banks. 
but even in 2016, much less, you know, 2020, when, when I think he just kind of said, fuck it and embraced this stuff much more. Yeah. Uh, but even in 2016, there, there were these moments where it really came through, uh, this being the most striking one. Um, I think also, yeah, I, I think there. I think there were a, a few of them. Like I remember, even in 2016, at a debate stage in Miami, uh, he uh, he conspicuously refused to uh, to walk back uh, the you know the comments that he made about Cuba, and Nicaragua, you know, in the 80s, and obviously that came back in a big way in 2020. But I mean, this was actually for somebody who wasn't didn't always seem sure of himself when he was talking about this stuff. Like this, this was just remarkably good. Like because it's it's sort of um, I mean, I, even though you can tell that it's like something that in typical Bernie-ish fashion, he just can't not say, right. like, you know, like it's, this just needs to come out. It's like, Henry Kissinger, you know, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's also, I think, I remember thinking at the time, it was very artfully done like that because he's also talking about Henry Kissinger's war crimes, but he's doing it in a specific way that connects a pretty clear dot to, um, uh, what was going on then because the uh the in 2016 there was all this uh the big foreign policy discussion that was dominating everything was was isis the islamic state in the middle east and he you know he doesn't quite explicitly spell this out but i mean i can't imagine anybody watching this and not kind of getting the analogy that he's drawing about you know kissinger's crimes in cambodia leading to the rise of the Khmer rouge and uh the invasion that uh, hillary clinton supported in iraq you know leading to the rise of the islamic state Yep. It's, I mean, it's, it's, and also obviously this kind of rhetoric that we got from him opened the door for other things like Ilhan Omar uh, grilling Elliot Abrams over uh, his human rights atrocities, you know, kind of like mini Henry Kissinger and Elliot Abrams. So, um, you know, the, 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 this, the new uh, American left that, you know, has been born since this first campaign, since moments like these five years ago, uh, it, it, again, not perfect. Again, we, they could do things differently, but like anti-imperialism is on the agenda and, and it apparently uh, um, occasionally shows up in their public rhetoric and thank God for that. Yeah, absolutely. So that one's called, it was all worth it to hear uh, Bertie say five years ago, Henry Kissinger is not my friend and that's in Jacobin, you were gonna say? And I, can I just mention that, uh, you know, aside from the specificity of what this clip was about, part of the reason I wrote this is because I know a lot of people, I say this in the intro of the piece, are doing are using things like the Facebook memories function and going back to where they were one year ago today or five years ago today. And I know a lot of my friends and comrades are, you know, posting pictures like a year ago today, I was in Iowa knocking on doors for Bernie Sanders. A year ago today, I was doing X, Y, and Z to get, you know, to try to get Bernie elected. And that's bringing back a, a real flood of emotions for people. And, um, you know, we were, we were at such, I'm sure this is true of you. I'm sure it's true of many of your listeners. We were like at the peak in our lives in terms of like thinking of what was politically possible in the United States of America one year ago today. We were thinking that Bernie G.D. Sanders was actually going to become president of the United States. And obviously we've fallen very far from there and everything that has happened since that year. But so uh, in writing this stuff out, I just wanted to kind of affirm that that feeling that a lot of people are going through. Um, because I watched this video and I was reminded, oh yeah, like everything that we did is worth it. And this video was coming up at the same, in my memories, the same time as when I was in Iowa and when I was doing all these things for Bernie. So people should, you know, 
acknowledge that emotion and sort of uh, they should affirm it. They should be like, yes, it was the correct thing to do to throw everything that I had into the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, to try to get this guy elected. Because why? Well, for one thing, he did shit like this. He said, Henry Kissinger is not my friend. Yeah, no, no question. And I mean, I guess uh, all like, I mean, I remember like, God, uh, 2012 when it was the things were dismal enough that the closest you got to like to to, to get anything like this, you, you actually had to watch the uh, Republican debates because like crazy old semi-libertarian reactionary Ron Paul would at least like have moments when he said very honest and, you know, uh, things about U.S. imperialism. Uh but actually getting to, uh, you know, getting to hear it from from the left. I mean, that's that's definitely a, an underrated uh, virtue of the Bernie campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so thinking about that, um, you know, where things were, you know, a year ago, which, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's pretty brutal in, in, in many ways to, uh, you know, to, to think back to that. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know certainly in my case, although I don't think actually any element to this is uh, is unique. Uh, but um, in um, but you know, certainly, certainly in my case, I think that um, you know a lot of stuff that's somewhat related but not completely related is very mixed up in that. You know, when I think about you know. The, like what things were like this time a year ago, uh, because a lot of a lot of things were better, right? You know that like, uh, um, you know, Bernie Sanders winning the presidential, uh, you know, contest. Uh, we could go outside. <laughs> um, you know, those are two, those those are definitely two of the big ones. Go outside, uh, could go inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go in a lot of places. <laughs> you could just do all kinds of things. You could go to bars, you could go to restaurants. You Dude, could... you don't even know what life was like back then, okay? It was crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we went inside, we went outside, we went in many places wherever we wanted. It was nuts. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and and yeah, I mean, and, and of course also, you know, I mean it's it's definitely mixed up in my head with, you know, with with uh you know, Michael Brooks still been alive, you know, cause like that was, I remember like a year, like a year and a little bit less than a week ago, you know, was, was at the end of the weekend that I was in, um, uh, you know, for, in Brooklyn for the last TMBS live show. And, um, and, you know, I'm I mean, the last time I saw him in person, you know, it was the end of that weekend. And I remember, you know, we kind of had, um, uh had lunch you know at the end of the weekend i've been crashing with with him and his girlfriend in brooklyn and uh and and my wife had been staying with a friend in new jersey but we all got together for lunch in the last day and that that conversation you know which was a very happy time was all very much bound up in in the fact that bernie you know bernie was winning that uh like like i remember um you know uh jennifer telling you know michael uh you know it's the first time they'd met you know that uh you know, every time Ben is watching YouTube, he's either he's either watching you or Bernie, and uh, and you know, in typical Michaelish fashion, the response was, "Yeah, that's that's correct. That's what you should watch." <laughs> that's a well balanced diet, right there. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> exactly. But but this uh, but this whole business of of thinking about past defeats and and how we relate to them is is all over the place in this 
long piece that you wrote for uh, for the nation, which uh, which I believe is actually as of this morning when I was looking at the the website is uh, is in the list of the most popular uh, articles that they've published in like the last couple of weeks. It's, it's very bizarre to me. I mean, it's like who would have guessed that so many people want to read like 6,000 words about this old socialist writer? Just not not what I would have expected. But I'm very grateful that people are reading. All right. So you can watch the rest of that episode. Every other uh, Thursday live episode, go to uh, patreon.com slash Ben Burgess. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, later on. Uh, but uh, right now on that uh, very encouraging note of, uh, of thinking about grappling with the effects of, uh, of past defeats, uh, we have uh, uh, GTAA uh, senior class war correspondent, uh, Sean Richman, uh, and he is, uh, he is the author of this book, uh, Tell the Bosses uh, That We're Coming, uh, and he is also muted. You know, unmute yourself, Sean. I will unmute myself. And why am I the expert on past defeats? Is that just like, <laughs> I'm just history's loser here. <laughs> well, I mean, it's certainly what a lot of the book, I think, is, um, <laughs> you know, is, is, is grappling with that, you know, that the, that, uh, the, the labor movement, uh, I, I'm going to blow a lot of people's minds here. Uh, not everything has been awesome. Yeah, uh, definitely true. Um, and and we're at a weird moment where, um, for the first time in mm, almost a century, I think we have a, a, a democratic presidential administration that recognizes that the the Democratic Party faces an existential threat if if there is not a a strong labor movement that can do what a labor movement does, which is a lot of political education, a lot of organizing, a lot of get out the vote. And is, you know, I mean, we might get the PRO Act, which is not nearly good enough, but we might get it. And I'm terrified that we might get it and that we're not ready for what we do in the moment that we get it. When we got the National Labor Relations Act, we basically had 11 years to get whatever we could before they started tamping down on, on our wins. Um, and we're not, we're just not nearly as prepared there, which is one of the, one of the reasons that I, that I, that I wrote the book. Um, yeah. So, so, so I want to, I want to talk about this. Uh, I should, uh, I should say, by the way, uh, that, uh, this is, uh, this could be a, a deep cut, but I, uh, it's not the first conversation I've had with, uh, with Sean about this when I was, uh, co-hosting the dead pundit society, we recorded like a two hour interview about this, that for various reasons, never ended up making it uh, out into the world. Uh, might, uh, might, might dig it up now and, and, you know, share it at least with, uh, with patrons. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in that, you know, we spent probably more time than we're going to be able to spend tonight uh, talking about the the history that you know that that set up the the moment that we're in with Ruth's right now. But I do want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Forrest, do you have the uh, the the Reagan sound? Yeah. Uh, hold on one second. Yeah. So, one thing that you talk about uh, in in your book, and and I think it's a really interesting. Like one of the reasons I was so interested to uh, to read the book in the first place is that I think that it is that it's a 
uh, third way, but in a good way, uh, between uh, between a couple of ways that I think that often that radicals uh, talk about and think about, you know, the situation uh, that uh, that the labor movement is in right now, uh, which, you know, there's there's one way that is uh, is sort of what I was. Uh, I was weaned on as a uh, as as a as like a, a, a baby radical, a, you know, Trotskyist, uh, which is uh, which is where you you say, okay, there's there's the the big problem with everything is uh, the uh, bureaucracy, basically, you know, like like union bureaucracy, basically being you know too soft and not militant enough. And that if you, you you kind of deal with that, you sort of solve the problem. And then uh, and then another way is kind of uncritically uh, cheerleading for, you know, what uh, the union movement is doing right now, and saying if if only we, uh, you know, like like basically we just need to keep doing more of the same, uh, and we'll be uh, we'll be okay. But harder and faster. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. More. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons I want to bring you on because I think anybody who's who's seen the uh, seen the show has seen um, has has heard me say many times and that any path forward for for the for the serious left has to go through uh, you know rebuilding the the labor movement. Without that, you know, without a sort of organized working class at the base, nothing else really gets done. Which I think has the virtue of being true. But after you said it enough times. It sort of starts to feel a little cheap. complicated. Yeah, it's not, it's not easy. It's yeah, right. Because it's, it's I'm making Jello here. Yeah, because <laughs> at a certain point, like I, th I think there's a reasonable response, which is yeah, okay. Uh, but are, are you eventually going to get around to telling us some stuff about how to do that? Uh, and, and I think this this gets into um, the uh, the critique. Uh, that you have in, in the book, even though it's not really framed primarily in terms of like the bad leadership analysis, you know, that, that, uh, that if, if only you had different, you know, leadership, uh, everything, you know, everything would be better. Like, I, you know, mentioned Trotskyism before this, you know, Leon Trotsky wrote something in the 1930s where he said the crisis of the international working class is ultimately a crisis of leadership. And uh, whereas in, uh, in this book you have uh, showing, I think that you're, about my age, I don't know if, if everybody gets this reference now. Uh, you uh, you you talk about uh, the uh, the Battlestar Galactica uh, TV show <laughs> uh, in the late two thousands. You know, talk about like President Rosalind being reluctant to put anyone out the airlock. You know, because 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 you know you have so few people left as a kind of analogy for for how to think about certain factional fights in the labor movement, but. You do make this critique of the way that we think about um, how union organizing works, what a unionized workplace even is, you know, how the how the process works, uh, and and I want to set that up. Uh, so let's let's just watch. Uh, this is our um, uh, this uh, yeah. this is uh, Ronald Reagan uh, eulogizing Walter Ruther. Walter Ruther was one of the first major yeah. labor, labor leaders to advocate that major or that management and labor Can you guys hear the shift audio away from, from battling over wage and benefit levels to a cooperative effort aimed at sharing in the ownership of the new wealth being produced. He was looking far beyond the next contract. There's a story that Ruther was touring a highly automated Ford assembly plant when someone said, Walter, you're going to have a hard time collecting dues 
union dues from all these machines. And Ruther simply shot back, not as hard a time as you're going to have selling them cars. <laughs> Ruther was killed in a tragic plane accident in 1970, so he didn't live to see the passage of legislation sponsored by Senator Russell Long of Louisiana that provides incentives for employee stock ownership plans, or as we call them, ESOPs. Yeah. So that's Reagan uh, talking about uh, you know, Walter Ruther, who, who, of course, oversaw all kinds of, of wonderful militant things to to uh, dramatically grow the uh, the labor movement and, you know, sit down strikes in the 30s and all that. But uh, but praising him for ultimately helping to uh, to create uh, a I mean, yeah. labor peace. Same as it ever was. Right. Like, I mean, Karen Lewis died last week and people are already like trying to turn her into an MLK whitewashed version of like, no, she was really about this. It's like, no, she was about fighting the bosses. <laughs> like, don't try to whitewash this. Like Walter Ruther, Mitt Romney's dad, who was the governor of Michigan, you know, referred to Mitt Romney and referred to, to, to Ruther as the most dangerous man in Detroit. He was, he was dead for more than a decade by the time that, that Reagan was saying that stuff about him. Um, so that tells you a lot there. I would say that Ruther plays an interesting role in labor. Like I, I have never met an auto workers activist who did not talk about Ruther and have a possibly apocryphal story about how Ruther told us what to do and we got it wrong. You know, Ruther told us like the auto factories, like like the three, the big three, got to build smaller cars, more fuel efficient cars, all this other stuff. You know, I mean, that's what happens when you die. And when you were a big threat when you were alive, people like start to create these legends about you. I think Walter Ruther was a great union leader. Sure, yeah. Uh, I would also say that like, I mean, you're right in my book, like I'm, I'm, I, I, I have no truck for like, the, the union leaders are our problem uh, uh, critique of the labor movement. I actually think that in many ways, you know, uh, 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 John Sweeney, who also died recently, uh, Bruce Rayner, who was kind of a shit to a lot of people, um, you know, uh, 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 but a lot of these union leaders of the sort of the mid-90s through era were, were in a lot of respects a lot smarter and a lot more thoughtful about how to proceed than like the heroes of the labor movement, like John L. Lewis, et cetera. Um, because good leadership is not really like, that's not like, it's not that we lack for good leadership. It's that the full weight of the law has crushed down on us and has been down on us for half a century. And we had 11 good years from the passage of, a little bit before the passage, I would say the passage of the, um, the, 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 the NRA, the, the Blue Eagle, until Taft-Hartley, we're like, we have the full weight of the federal government saying, if the workers want to have a union, you got to respect that. And we had leaders who took as much advantage of it as they could. And then it came to a crashing stop. And because it wasn't 
the end of that wasn't uh, a tragedy or a crisis. It wasn't like an immediate thing. It was more this sort of slow decline that it took us so long to recognize it that I think a lot of the left has an interpretation of how to fix labor that is built upon this sort of 1970s Trotskyite interpretation of, you know, we need a more militant rank and file, we need better leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And like, they couldn't recognize at the time that like, no, like we're in the middle, we're, like we are, we're in like the first act of a four act open shop drive that is gonna, you know, I mean, it's not gonna be as much murder as there was in the previous ones, but like, it's gonna be pretty vicious. Yeah. And 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 one of my frustrations, and my book, my book is frankly, it's a Frankenstein's monster of a book. Like it, it's, I'm trying to speak to several audiences at once. I'm a little bit all over the place with it because you know, I, when you're writing a book, you're like, maybe this is my only book. I'm gonna throw everything at it. Um, but I, I a lot of the sort not, of you're not gonna be your only book, by the way. I think that's already. Uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think well. No man has promised tomorrow, so who knows? Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah. But um, a, a lot of the sort of the, the, the left-wing labor strategy, particularly, I think, what, what is called the rank-and-file strategy based out of the DSA. And I think, I think that it's actually way more nuanced and there's way more facets to it. But I think that it tends to get boiled down to by far too many people as sort of a replay of the 1970s sort of rank and file, like get a job at a factory and and form an opposition caucus and take over the union. And I I I don't like I don't see it. I I mean like I we all saw how the 1970s ended. It ended with you know Ronald Reagan. Um, and a lot of my inspiration when I started writing was Stanley Aronowitz who wrote a lot of amazing things during that 1970s period, a lot of amazing books. Everybody should read at least one book by Stanley Aronowitz. But, you know, when he actually formed an opposition caucus and took over his union leadership and became, I don't know if he's like financial secretary or treasurer or whatever of the Professional Staff Congress, local 2337 of the AFT, he just felt himself bogged down in the full weight of this legal system that is crushing unions, the duty of fair representation, grievances, arbitration, etc. And he, his last book, which is amazing, this is the book you actually should read. It's the Death and Life of Great American Unions I, or Labor. I, I might got, might have gotten the name wrong, but just Stanley around with his book from 2017 or whatever. Mm. Read it. Uh, he just, you know, I. I I read it. I was still on staff in a well-paid job at the AFT, um, and it was it was a totally disturbing book to read because he was putting names to feelings that I had, just like things that just weren't working, you know. Just and I just I couldn't unread it. Yeah. So let's, let's yeah. So let's, let's let's talk about this and um, you know of uh, of. Uh, Frankenstein, though it may be, I've got some. Uh, it's a uh, it's a great book, and uh, and it's it's in many ways uh, one of which is that it's also doubles as a uh, as a reading list for for other things you know that people can could get into uh, to do a uh, to do a deep dive about this. Yeah. Um, but you know, 
even if you think, okay, so this idea that like the main thing that you need to do to, to turn things around in the labor movement is to have, you know, um, rank file caucuses, have these opposition caucuses, have more, you know, militant leadership, uh, that, that that's, you know, that that's going to run up against some of the same structural obstacles, you know, that, that have been, you know, defeating the uh, mainstream uh, of uh, of labor, so it's it's not a question, and you know, for that matter, this this also goes to the other one of those forks that we talked about at the beginning, which was uh, the idea that everything that we're you know everything that we're doing is great, we just need to do more of it, uh, and you know, in, in both cases, yeah, 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 both cases, the yeah, you know, well, you know, ten percent more organizing budget, you know, that that should do it, uh, and. Twenty percent. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, but in both cases, this this sort of uh, the idea is that it's it's kind of insufficient will, uh, and and you reject that. But that doesn't mean that um, that nothing like so. Instead, I think what you kind of suggest in in parts of the book is that it's not so much like insufficient will or insufficient guts or insufficient militancy or insufficient attention to organizing even, you know, it's, uh, there's a more basic need to, uh, to rethink things. And you've got a great line uh, observation where you talk about the, uh, you know, beginnings of, of the, uh, of the Cold War and the communists, you know, being purged, you know, from, uh, from the AFL-CIO uh, and, you and you say that okay, there's some left wing mythology that you sometimes get here that like oh this is where everything went wrong because the communists had like the right answers, uh, and you think well that's not necessarily it right it's not as necessarily that they had all the answers either, uh, so it's it's that they had all the right opinions it's that but the germ of truth in that left wing narrative is that this is a tragedy because it's kind of the end of just different opinions period. Just pure disagreement. Yes. And this is one of my one of my terrifying fears about the PRO Act, um, that the PRO Act was born out of a process of, look, it's, it's a natural tendency within the labor movement to be like, we need unity. We need to, like, let's get in a room, let's come up with what, what, like, what's the consensus, and then, like, that's our plan and we move forward. And, like, that's great when, like, the plan is good. But when, like, you genuinely don't know how to move forward. And I say this to somebody that I genuinely don't know how to move forward. I'm putting some ideas out there, but I could be totally wrong. I, I, have, I have total humility in that. Nobody knows the pathway forward for labor. It really is a very complex problem. And so disagreement is probably the best thing. Like, you know, I, I've been out of those rooms. I, I call it like the dark, airless rooms, like these... You know, like you'd have these meetings in like the the, the O'Hare Hilton where like it's in the basement. There's not even any windows. <laughs> and you're like, come on, we can figure this out. How do we, Janus is coming down. We're going to lose agency fee. How do we get the best signups? And like your whole goal is to come out of the room with the best idea. And it's like, you're not, you're, you're just not gonna. Because yeah. you're talking yes. to yourselves and you're, you know, and like you're all DC based or like you're DC plus Chicago plus LA and New York. And it's just, it's not enough. Yeah. And uh, like things about that sort of like post Janus strategy, where like even, even at that level, I've got like real criticisms of like, this maybe is not the best idea here. Like maybe yeah. we well, 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 rethink exclusive representation 
Who do we even ask to join? Do we want everybody to join? Because when you're in a right to work situation where not everybody has to join, but everybody is covered by the contract, anybody who is a union member and, and more so a, a shop steward is de facto a union leader. And so if the guy who joined right away is a racist, if he's a sexist, and he becomes the de facto union leader just because he was the first one to join, and you needed to get that card, and you needed to get that $15 a month or $30 a month, did you just cost yourself 45 other workers in the unit because nobody wants to, nope, nobody wants anything to do with this guy who's the yeah. first to join because he's a shitbag. Yeah, so, so let's, let's – uh, there's a lot there that I want to get into, but let's, uh, let's back up a little bit uh, because I think some people watching this or listening to it later might not know what some of the terms that you just used mean. Uh, so uh, let's, let's, let's start – uh, let's start with Jadis. So this is a uh, this is a big thing. A uh, a couple uh, you know, a couple of years ago, this is I, I was actually uh, in my you know one little uh, little stint as a uh, extremely low level uh, you know uh, sellout union leadership person. Uh, I uh, I was uh, I was on like the board of the adjuncts union at Rutgers for a couple of years, and 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 that was certainly the internal discussion there was was just uh, thoroughly dominated by this and people being afraid of what this Supreme Court decision you know was was going to do to us. So uh, so so you want to start by filling in people about what that is. So right to work is a thing that is passed in Ta the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. It's the first major amendment to our, our main labor law in this country. And it basically allows states to pass laws that say, even if you're represented by a union, you don't have to pay dues. You have, a, you have a right to work without having to belong to the union. And I actually think there, there, there's a lot that um, could be litigated there in terms of what the, the 1947 legislators thought. But basically, it's I get the benefits of the contract, I get to shit on the contract, I get to complain about it, and I'm going to pay anything in dues. And it has been a real resource suck among unions. And yeah, it's, it's basically what it allows people to be free riders. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not crazy about the free rider frame because I, I think it sends unions off in the wrong direction. Um, but. It, 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 it does, it's, it's, it's a resource suck. And, um, and, 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 most, and, and, and most of the states that passed these right to work laws that said like, you can, you get the full benefits of the union contract, but you don't have to pay anything. were mostly the old Confederacy and eventually the Sun Belt. And what it caused unions to do is to not organize in the South and in the Sun Belt. Um, and that just caused employers in the North and the Midwest to relocate their, their factories and their warehouses to the South and to the Sun Belt. That's bad. Um, and then um, it, uh, it, 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 particularly like after Obama, after the Tea Party midterms uh, and the Koch brothers get all these mid Midwest state legislatures, Wisconsin, you know, Michigan, all of these states start passing these these right to work laws that used to be like, okay, that's the Confederacy, and the union movement could write them off. Now they're going to like what used to be the heart of the labor movement, and it caused real uh, declines in union power and resources. 
I think one of the most fascinating numbers or some of the most fascinating numbers you could look at in terms of why Donald Trump won. I, I don't have them exactly, but Donald Trump had fewer votes than Mitt Romney in the state of Michigan. Right. Fewer votes still won the state of Michigan. And remember, he, he lost the popular vote across the country, but he won these three states by these narrow electoral college votes. Michigan in 2012 was a, 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 a state where everybody who's represented by a union was in the union. The unions could campaign to them. They could do political electoral work. By 2016, it was, it was right to work and did just enough people drop their union that their union couldn't communicate to them why this candidate is going to like not send you to a concentration camp and this guy is like garbage on a stick. Yeah, it was like 10,000 votes. Probably right to work alone explained why Donald Trump won Michigan in 2016. So the Republicans know that that's the plan. And then they're, they're moving this plan to um, be in the public sector you're, you know, you're sort of, you're just, you're stuck with judge-made law. The, 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 the conservatives have been moving a plan for a long time to um, outlaw what's called agency fee, which is the basic principle of if you, if you get the benefits of a union contract, if you can file a grievance and the union has to spend money on your behalf to prosecute that grievance, you should have to pay a fee. First, it was called Friedrichs versus CTA. It was going to get uh, a five to four ruling before Judge Scalia died, which was, that was a lovely day. It was, you know, we all did a little jig on that day. And then when Trump won and, you know, they rushed through whoever, uh, which one was it? Who cares? Doesn't matter. They're all the same. Some white guy or some white lady. Um, they, they pressed through the same damn case from a different state. It, this time it was, it was Janus versus AFSCME. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And, and, and it passed. And so now the entire public sector is right to work. And the public sector, this is not great for labor. It's not great for labor for the public sector to be the backbone of the labor movement. But the entire public sector, all the teachers unions, all the municipal workers unions, all your garbage men are in a right to work situation. It wouldn't matter that much if all of Amazon was union but all of Amazon is not union, so it, it, it was incredibly damaging. Um, and I don't know how we how do we get to this part of, of this? Yeah, so 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 so, so we just you know you, you were talking about Janus uh, and you know and what this is right. So it's basically making you know all public sector workers, uh, you know, the entire public sector right to work, so you could be. You have a union that's the union that represents that workplace. They have a legal obligation to represent, you know, they, every every worker there. Uh, but, you know, file, you know, like have a grievance procedure, et cetera, right? Uh, but uh, not every worker there has an obligation to uh, to even pay an agency fee to uh, to support what the union's doing on their behalf. Uh, which, which is an obvious uh, among everything else that you're you're raising, like the electoral consequences, is just an obvious huge problem just for the finances uh, of of these unions. And so uh, you're talking about rooms where people in union leadership are in kind of a panic about how to respond to this, and you know, and you feel like they don't have you know sufficient disagreement about basics. 
uh, to uh, for for anything good to uh, to come out of that room. Uh, before we before we go on to uh, to your point about that, I do want to just briefly address. So we had a, a super chat question about uh, the Pro Act, which you mentioned before. So uh, again, you know, as people I think have have different levels of of understanding. You know, maybe who who are um, you know anybody who's watching this or listening to it is is you know extremely sympathetic, but not necessarily versed in in this in the details of a lot of this stuff. Uh, so uh, so let's 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 start with the uh, with the basics, the uh, the Pro Act that you've referred to a few times. What is that exactly? It is the Democrats' uh, sort of standard uh, uh, let's reform our, our main labor law. Um, uh, it, the, the drafting process, my frustration with it is that it was very much an insider thing. It's very much like not enough people were reading not enough papers. And partly this is just like there's not enough congressional staff to deal with it. And I think there's a problem with the AFL-CIO and its affiliates not raising their ambitions to the moment and just feeling like, you know, we'll, you know, we're, we're in trouble and, and the Democrats are never, the Democrats don't love us like the Republicans hate us. That's like, that's like a, right. it's, a it's a thing that is said all around. But what it does is it, it essentially repeals the Taft-Hartley Act. So it re-legalizes solidarity activism. The idea that like, if you were working at the Oreo cookie factory in Chicago, where they closed your factory down and moved the jobs to Mexico, if supermarket workers all over the country want to say, I'm not gonna put Oreo cookies on the shelves. We're gonna throw them in the garbage dumpster behind the store. Um, that's not illegal anymore. Well, it's, it's not illegal anymore. No. Uh, it, it restores the right to strike, which we don't actually have a right to strike right now. A real right to strike would entail you have a right to return to the job after the strike is over, win, lose, or draw. We lost that in a Supreme Court decision in 1938. And yeah, and, and, and those two things that you just mentioned are huge. I think not huge. 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 Yeah, has a sense of just how uniquely how backwards we are. Like I think it's illegal to go on a strike and sympathy with somebody else's strike and solidarity with it, just not out of the issues that you're bargaining over, but just to help out, you know, your fellow workers somewhere else who are on strike. It is legal to uh, essentially, you know, you can't call it firing them, but you know, to hire permanent replacements uh, for without a difference but the point is just that like th this is just just by global standards these these are just yeah. astonishingly terrible yeah, no, if, you, if you look at the strike statistics over the last 50 years you see this 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 tremendous like historical down wave and then like this slight uptick in the last couple of years the the, the down wave is you know people like to think of Reagan firing the air traffic controllers and that's what they did. Nah, that was symbolic. That was just the president saying like, go ahead. The, the real issue is that this company, this, this copper mining company in Arizona called Phelps Dodge bargained their workers to impasse over draconian cuts in pension and healthcare and wages. And then they bust in thousands of scabs and they, they dared their workers out on strike and the workers went out on strike. And then the local cops were totally in the boss's pocket. And after 
after 12 months, the scabs could conduct a, a what's called a, a union decertification election under the NLRB and voted the union out. 1982-1983. That's the roadmap. Once Phelps Dodge did that, every other boss that wanted their, their union out did that. And that's where you saw the massive deunionization over the course of the Reagan-Bush era. And, 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 and that's where you got to the point where for, for many workers, the idea of going on strike became terrifying. It became terrifying for workers who had a union. It became this important in organizing campaigns. In a union organizing campaign, the bosses will do captive audience meetings. You have to attend or you're fired. And within that meeting, they would say, the union's going to make you go on strike. We're not going to give you anything, by the way. You're getting nothing from us. Like, but if you go on strike, the union might make you go on strike, and, and then you could lose your job, which is just an amazing sort of, I mean, as you know, I, I love what you do in terms of like talking points and philosophy. Like you can have a field day with that. But at the end of the day, all it is is just like the boss saying like, fuck you. You're <laughs> here forever until we say you're not. And it, yeah. it just devastated the right to strike. And it's only, it's only after the Chicago teachers went on strike in 2012 and then the red for edge strikes and, and the fight for 15 strikes that we're getting back to. And we're not in a strike wave. We have, we have come back to like mid 1980s levels of strikes. The mid 1980s were a shit period for going on strike. It was terrible. Devastating. The pro act would end that it would restore the right to strike in a very meaningful way. Because if you knew you could return to the job, Win, lose, or draw. You go out on strike, you, you don't get a raise, the boss wins everything, but you still have a right to go back to the job, which was the intention of the National Labor Relations Act. You would go on strike. You would do it. You'd roll the dice. You'd do it. For a couple of days, at least, you'd go on strike. We, so those those are huge. My, my biggest concern with the PRO Act, um, well, I, I mean, first of all, how do you get it passed? I'm sure I, I, I can see a lot of comments in the, in the, in the feed here. How do you get it passed? Um, which yeah, is, you know, is, that's not something you could probably, that's not something you could pass by reconciliation, right? You I think, no, I, I, I think there are arguments that you could, the congressional budget office is going to be a problem here, but that so includes with it, um, uh, financial penalties for committing unfair labor practices. Bosses violate the law all the time. And all they get is you have to put a posting up. The PRO Act is going to involve financial penalties, which would go to the federal government to continue to enforce the act. That so, alone. So that, that, that might be significant. So for people who, who don't, uh, that would be the significant, like significant budgetary impact you need to be able to get around the filibuster by passing it through reconciliation. So, so that could theoretically happen. Although, I, 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 Yes, I think so. But there, here's, here's a, here's another problem with that. Um, and this is this comes back to the airless rooms in the basement of the O'Hare Hilton Air. You know, uh, uh, unions stopped filing ULPs a long time ago. Unions have been suffering in silence about how bad the law is for such a long time. So, like, nobody cares. The press doesn't care. The politicians don't care. We don't. We don't. We don't have the money to prosecute all these ULPs. And so, the Congressional Budget Office put out a report about like, well, how much money is this going to make us? if we have financial penalties and like they could, they could really lowball the figure because they could base it on how many ULPs unions actually file. We need a campaign of UL of unions filing 
all of the ULPs. Because if unions filed every ULP that happened, it would create tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for the federal government to fund the NLRB. So it, it could get passed through reconciliation. And also, you know, the whole debate about, uh, about uh, uh, the filibuster seems like a fairly fast-moving situation. That aside, my biggest complaint about the PRO Act is that there's not enough attention in it by the framers of it to how much damage the courts have done to the NLRB. We can talk about the Taft-Hartley Act, which was bad, but most of the damage is actually judge-made. We lost the right to strike, not from the Taft-Hartley Act, but from this like crappy Supreme Court decision from 1938 called McKay versus, uh, uh, McKay versus the NLRB, where like some Supreme Court justice just, you know, was like, you know, it, it was like some company fired about like five ringleaders of a strike that lasted through a weekend, a weekend. And they were like, well, you know, you can't discriminate against them. So they need to get rehired. But of course, if it was necessary to protect and continue your business, then you should be allowed to find some non-discriminatory way to hire new employees to replace your strikers. Had nothing to do with the facts. The strike took place over a weekend. That's it. That's what Phelps Dodge based their strike busting uh, strategy on, you know, decades later. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that that employees have a, 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 don't have a First Amendment right to criticize their employer because they need to be loyal, that there's a disloyalty penalty for criticizing your employer, right? The Supreme Court decided that college professors are inherently managerial because we got to go to too many goddamn meetings where the administration is going to overrule us anyway. There's so many judge-made rules that are garbage. And the, and the PRO Act basically doesn't deal with them. And one of the things that I, and this is even my idea, I found yeah. this thing from some book from 1994. So you, so you, so you, so you think the pro, like, PRO Act is great, but... You need to tell the bosses to fuck, the, the judges to fuck off, and the bosses. You got to tell everybody to fuck off. Everybody should fuck off, who's not a word. Fuck off. But no, I mean, the, the judges... Title for the episode, keep going. You, you, need, you, you, you need some language that says, and so the the... the this guy Richard Block wrote like wrote this thing in 1994 when we thought that Bill Clinton might fix the labor law, and he was like, "Hey, here's the thing you got to do: you need to put some simple language in the labor law that instructs the National Labor Relations Board to ignore judicial precedent, take every decision on its own merits, forget what some judge who was dealing with factory logic from 1938 has to say about oh, like Amazon in 2020." or Google, you know, in 2021, like just dismiss it all, make new laws. It's huge because I've experienced this personally as a union organizing director. The, the NLRB is so hamstrung by Supreme Court decision, you know, that if, if you get a case that just rubs up gently against like the Yeshiva Act or any anything else, you know, uh, Jefferson Standard, they freeze, they get paralyzed, they don't deal with it, and it kills an organizing campaign. And that is one of the biggest things that's missing from the PRO Act. Um, and that's one of the, that's, that's, again, not disagreement in the room. I wasn't in the room. I wrote the book so I could virtually be in the room. It, 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 it's, it's a huge missing component. Yeah. So 
so one one discussion uh, is about you know what kind of legal uh, reform we need, and there there might be possibility now uh, from this dilemma that you know that you're talking about that obviously um, you know misinterest Democrats have done tons of stuff in the last few decades to uh, to undermine uh, the uh, the bargaining you know power of of major unions etc. All of that's all of that's true. They're obviously, you know, beholden to uh, to to the owner owning class, but they do have this contrary incentive because electorally they are really screwed if if, if unions go away completely. So that the tension between those yeah. create creates some possibility for legal reform. Uh, but you also talk about um, you also talk about uh, in in your book and and elsewhere. Uh, you know, kind of like what different things unions could do to operate within the rigged and god awful rules that, uh, that that currently exist. Uh, one of the most interesting, one of which, and, and and maybe for a lot of people, the most counterintuitive, and and you sort of um, uh, you kind of referred to it in passing earlier, but but I want to I want to make this a little bit more explicit is. Uh, is is letting go maybe of uh, of seeking exclusive representation in every case you know maybe embracing uh, minority unionism as a strategy uh, so you know so not you know on purpose uh, not you know not every you know like you're uh, you're not trying to have you know what we would currently you know in the United States which is a crucial qualifier uh, in the United States you know considered to be a, a, a union shop uh, where. Uh, where you have one union that's won the legal right to represent everybody there, that you actually think that there are there are benefits to uh, to not always pursuing that. How into the weeds can I get here? <laughs> Medium. Medium. Okay. Um, uh, 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 unions were were organized in this country largely on an exclusive basis, but it was also ba- uh, on a basis of we, the union, are going to train the workers to do the job of forging steel, uh, electrician work, et cetera. And then you only can get workers from the union. That's, that's in the DNA of unions. Um, and, and, and so when the NLRB framework came around where it was like, you get certified, a group of workers can say, we're a union, you have to bargain with us. And that really was what the NLRB was meant to say. There's five of us here. Even though there's 500 workers, there's five of us that want to be a member of this union. You have to bargain with the five of us. And so in the early days of the NLRB, it was certifying these these sort of minority unions of like, you know, yeah, there's five people say that they're members of the UAW. You got to bargain with those five people. Um, And what happened is, you know, again, partly there's this vestigial notion of like everybody should be in the union. Partly you had the fact that the AFL and the CIO were competing and the AFL had a, had a sort of uh, a, an organizational strategy of every electrician should be ours and every carpenter should be theirs and every broom sweeper should belong to the broom sweepers union. And the CIO was like, no, like everybody that works for GM should be in the same union of General Motors. Um, and, and so um, as, and they were doing jurisdictional fights in these competitive elections under the NLRB. And so the NLRB was um, Roosevelt's thing. And the CIO was very, you know, was, was, was loyal to Roosevelt. And so the CIO was, started to get, want to get exclusive certifications in order to stop the AFL from saying, 
these five workers belong to us and just carving up the bargaining unit and like dividing up the unit. And so they were getting it. And so then you had these exclusive units, but you didn't necessarily have agency fee or the union shop. You didn't have the principle that everybody had to join the union, but the unions were winning wage increases every year. So everybody was joining because like, it was pretty sweet. It's like, thank you. Another $2, you know, $2 an hour wage. Yeah, I, I'm joining. Then comes World War II, and the unions, out of a out of a out of a feeling of patriotism, uh, commit to a no strike. You know, we're not going to strike for the war because, like, you know, the GM factories were now making bombs and bombers to defeat the Nazis. Yeah, we should probably build as many bombers as possible to kill as many Nazis as possible. That that's probably a good thing for society. Right. Um, but then. Um, Roosevelt's War Labor Board froze wages, and you had workers that were dealing with uh, uh, factory lines that were getting sped up, inflation, because inflation was going crazy during the war, and no ability to strike. And their only form of protest was to quit the union in protest. And so the unions were dealing with this devastating loss of dues revenue and membership, and they were pleading with the War Labor Board, like, you gotta, you gotta fix this for us, or else we're gonna have to give up the the no strike, you know, agreement. And the War Labor Board created this this uh, this formula called uh, maintenance of membership, which is basically contract is signed. Everybody who's a member today has to stay a member for the rest of the contract, which evolved into agency fee and union shop. Um, and 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 so that's that's where we're at in terms of. Of, of, of what a union is. And so today we have, most contracts have um, a no strike clause, which is basically a, a, a contract term of year, five years, seven years, starting to get longer and longer, um, that says like, these are the wage increases, this is our arbitration process, this is the grievance process. And if you have a grievance, you take it to the grievance process, but there will be no strikes. And has a very fairly all-encompassing management's rights clause that lets the boss make a lot of fairly substantial decisions about like subcontracting or, or whatever. Um, and, and in my experience, organizing new unions were like, this is all still sort of de facto, like the boss is going to expect a management's rights clause and an arbitration clause. And, and that's what we're trading for a union shop clause or an agency free, fee clause. Um, I have seen way too many, look, it's very hard to get a strike way of going in this country. It's very hard. If, if workers need to see other workers go out on strike and be inspired by them going out on strike and winning or even not winning, but still getting their job back. And so you've got 10% of the workforce that has a union, but are locked up by these clauses that say you can't go on strike. And worse than that is that in my ex I have seen so many wildcat strikes in like tiny units of, you know, teachers, districts, charter schools, whatever, where like the boss does something completely outrageous and the workers rightly are like, we're not coming in today. And the, 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 the staff rep needs to show up and say, you got it. They can fire you. You got to go back to work. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're legally obligated to do that. They're, they're legally obligated to do that. In, in, in fact, this this devastating. is it's devastating. Uh, yeah, we, we had uh, in the book you you have a uh, a really remarkable example of that from uh, from four years ago from the inauguration of Donald Trump. Oh yeah, the Rockettes. Yeah, the Rockettes did not want to dance in you know their short dresses for the pussy grabber in chief. Um, and so a bunch of them refused to do it, and their their union had to had to put out a press release saying you have to do this or you're fired. Me at, at the same exact time that the taxi drivers, who under the law are not technically workers, don't have a union contract, were 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 striking, you know, at, at the airports over you know the threatened Muslim ban, it, 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 and that was the contrast. It was terrible. It was, it was just, it was a really embarrassing, like, it was just, it, it's just so defeatist. You know, if you're like a non-union worker for like, why, looking at why should I join a union? Here's a group of workers that don't technically have a union and they're going on strike. Here's a group of workers who are having a fairly reasonable objection to not tap dancing for a, a rapist. And they're the ones that are being told by their union leaders, you got to go back. And so, and so one of the things that I'm pointing to is that this is all only exclusive representation makes this possible because what makes the union responsible for enforcing the no strike clause is the fact that the union it represents everybody and everybody's got to belong to the union, or at least they're bound by the contract. And if you peel that back and, and you go back to what the NLRA was meant to do, which was to certify a members only union. I'm only bound by this contract if I sign up with this union. And you create these really interesting possibilities where maybe a, a, another group of workers forms some other kind of union to do a temporary protest to say, we're not going to tap dance for Donald Trump. Um, and they're not bound by the no strike clause any longer. Yeah. And, and you, uh, and look, there's, there's a lot more we could say about that. You know, I, I think as you'd be the first to acknowledge there are, uh, advantages and disadvantages to this approach that you're talking about but uh a you know one point that you've another point that you've made uh to me and, and you make in the book uh is uh actually in a odd little bit of ideological convergence is the same point that uh that thaddeus russell made here a few weeks ago uh which is that it, there is some historical evidence uh that um that non-exclusivity, you know, having to, to to compete for members with with other unions, uh, has in some cases been a, a an incentive to uh, to engage in more militant tactics to, you know, to bring home the goods, you know, for uh, for workers. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot more uh, that we uh, that we could say about that. But uh, do you? I want to move on to a couple of other things. Do you have like another twenty minutes? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. I, 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 so on that, I mean, I, I don't want to say like I'm a cockeyed. I'm not like this is the way to the yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Like it's not like I'm. I'm pointing to like a crazy sci-fi experiment here, and like my friend Chris Brooks from Labor Notes, you know, he's always quick to point out that like unions, com like public sector unions, compete in Tennessee, and it only leads to like more conservative uh, union strategies. And that's true. And like, you know, I'm, I'm pointing to like these crazy experiences out of like 1934 in the hotels where like there was a Trotskyite union, there was an anarchist union, there was a communist union, and there was a mobster union. And like, it's not even like we're comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing like chopped, you know, ground beef 
and cucumbers. It's just, it's so bizarre. But I do think what it creates is some opportunity for a little bit more of a rank and file rebellion. And, and, and just, we just, we just need more of that in the air because if, if the, and here's what I'd say, if the bosses are determined to break the, 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 the basic elements of, um, uh, uh, of labor peace and labor peace depends upon exclusive representation and agency fee and no strike clauses and all that. But Janus is them saying like, no, we're not interested. It really does beg a couple of people saying like, we'll show you what the lack of labor peace means. And that's oh. one of the left strategy. I oh. I'd really much rather do this in like auto factories in Detroit than public schools in Tennessee. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, so, um, joined by current affairs editor uh nathan uh nathan robinson uh sean do you know nathan i do not know but i, I mean i know the name hello sean nice <laughs> nice to meet you i've just been looking up your your book as i've been listening to you because everything you've been saying has made me fascinated and uh and, and want to read it so i'm gonna i'm gonna get a copy right away let's sell me 23 copies from your <laughs> should uh yeah, I should write some labor stuff for current affairs, but uh, uh, but yeah. So uh, there are a couple things uh, that that I wanted to uh, want to talk about uh, while uh, while you're both here. Uh, I want to talk about what has uh, just been happening uh, to Nathan in uh, in a few minutes. Uh, it's of course the primary reason you know that, that we invited him on beyond always enjoying his his, his presence and his commentary. Uh, but uh, first, uh, while you know, while you're both here, wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit. Uh, speaking of the uh, uh, the lack of uh, of class peace, uh, Forrest, do you want to uh, do you want to set this up for us? Uh, the uh, the Indian farmers thing. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there's a really good description of it. I don't know if we really have time to watch it, but um, BJ Prashad was on uh, weekends yesterday on the Jacobin Channel and. Did a, did a really good um, kind of analysis of, of how this all got started. Um, basically, Modi has passed these three uh, farmer bills in the name of like reform and progress, which obviously um, amounts to like a neoliberal crackdown on the fact that um, in, in places like Kerala, where farmers kind of rely on, uh, rely on this, they have a, a minimum support price. So basically the government will set a floor on how much... Um, on how much each crop is worth. So if you're not, if a crop isn't selling that well at the moment, the government will basically buy out farmers who don't manage to sell to bigger farmers or to um, distributors. So um, Modi's farm bills basically would impact that and would make it so that, because this isn't codified into law, it's kind of just an agreement that the Indian government has with uh, farmers and peasants that they'll, they'll set this price usually. So, um, there's there's a movement to, to codify that into law and Modi's bills would basically do the opposite and would open up the free market so that there's no uh, there's no price limit there's nothing it's just that you know anyone that can come anyone can come in from the US or anywhere else and just say hey we don't want to pay this much for your crops like anymore and basically give you nothing for them so this set off um, series of strikes which ended up with uh, with workers and manufacturers like like these huge amounts of groups, um, uh, a quarter billion people, like, like, um, striking, which is the, uh, a quarter of a billion. So it's 200. Yeah. 
No, it's it, it was a it's the biggest strike in um in in history that's ever been recorded. Um. Yeah. So uh, so not and, and these are uh, these are like small small holding independent farmers. Uh, you know, yeah. That, that we're talking about here. So so it's not a it's it's not a labor strike, but it's it's a well it's, labor has joined in in solidarity. So um, Jacobin wrote a really good piece about it that I can I can uh, pull up that kind of explains it. So workers workers began striking in other sectors. Um, uh, that's how the that's how like the it became such a big strike. Yeah, so I mean, this this is just you know this is just worth uh, you know worth noting uh, and 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 giving at least a, a minute or two too since it's this is kind of a uh, this is kind of an astonishing thing that this is something that I think you could um, you know you could watch a lot of hours of cable news and and and, and spend a lot of hours you know reading. Uh, the mainstream press and have no idea that this is going on, or they do every now and again, you know, run into a passing mention of it. Well, when when it first happened, I checked um, which which publications were covering it. Only really Jacobin, Common Dreams, and like the progressive uh, press in the U.S. was covering it. Like, and and now you know they've started covering it because you really can't, um, you know, you can't ignore it. But um, but the Indian government has been uh, cracking down on journalists and basically have raided even like journalists, um, like the homes of journalists to try to get information about, um, you know, before they could publish it. Hold on. I, I'm going to pull up the BJ Prashad thing um, really fast. It's a couple minutes because he really explains it a lot better. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's watch, let's watch just a couple minutes of VJ Prashad. Give, uh, give Nathan and, uh, and Sean a chance to weigh in. And uh, and then uh, and then we'll switch gears to the uh, the original subject. Um, there's a long-standing dynamic in capitalism that erodes the ability of farmers and agricultural workers to make a living. You know, this is a long history. So let's not forget that history. It's been a very long struggle for farmers and agricultural workers to survive against the entire profit system, not just what's happening in India today. Uh, this long-term problem is what provoked in the United States, for instance, the suicides uh, during the farm consolidations, the monopoly control of farms in the 1980s. You might remember the farm aid concerts in the United States and so on. This is a very long-term issue that I, I just like to have us put on the table. Um, more closely in terms of India, um, last year, in the middle of the pandemic, the Indian government, the extreme right government led by Narendra Modi, Prime Minister Modi, pushed through three farm bills and two labor bills, all basically along the lines of the International Monetary Fund's so-called um, you know, rationalization, liberalization policy. Um, you know, in terms of the labor bills, it's called basically, uh, you know, uh, there's a kind of labor rationalization that's needed. What they mean is, of course, labor needs to be defeated. Um, these farm bills are very, very much an attack on farmers and on, on agricultural workers in the following two ways, at least. Firstly, they allow big corporate entities to enter and to come in and dominate the marketplace, the mandi where the small farmers, medium farmers bring their, their goods to sell. So there is this issue of who controls the mandi. Um, 
Secondly, the Farm Corporate Food Corporation of India, the FCI, which used to have a commanding role in the mandi in this marketplace, would come in, would buy, um, you know, the product brought to the market by the small farmers, medium farmers, and so on. And by doing this, the Food Corporation of India did two simultaneous things. On the one side, it enabled a floor price for the farmers. You know, if if there was insufficient demand for the farmers. Uh, products the food corporation would buy up uh, you know whatever they were selling and ensure that there was a minimum support price for them in terms of their incomes on the other that's uh that's the beginning kind of of just explaining um the the floor price thing which is what i wanted to bring up um more than the strike itself um just kind of as as part of the same subject of you know what what could be done without I mean, in certain places, what could be done without um, necessarily passing something like the PRO Act and, and without necessarily relying on unions, you know, um, it's an interesting example that, you know, that doesn't exist here, but it's an example of, uh, of something that, you know, that, that can be done to help out um, farmers and, and laborers. So, so are you just kind of thinking in terms of like uh, kind of um – Wildcat strike outside of uh, outside of official channels, or or you want to spell out the connection a little bit more? You were thinking of yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is. It's the you know, it's the biggest uh, wildcat strike ever. You know what I mean? Like in 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 history that's ever been recorded because it's it's like you know it, it's it was it's it's been huge, and um, I think he explains it later on in that clip. But um, yeah, that was kind of the connection. All right. Uh, so I, I do want to switch gears in a minute, but either of you guys uh, have anything you want to add? I I I sort of lost I, I lost track of of Indian politics a while ago. It just it also just got really depressing as it went further in a sort of Hindu nationalist direction. Um, I I used to organize a lot of Indian workers in higher ed, postdoctoral research associates, and I. I, I love them. It, it was almost like a reminder of like, you know, it, 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 was, it was like an echo of dealing with, uh, with, with like Cuban folks, you know, where it's like, you're either here or there. It was just totally polarized, you know, and particularly a lot of folks coming out of other Prakash, which is this state in India that like sort of routinely elects communist governments where like nine out of 10 of the, of the Indian scientists that I would organize would be like, give me that card. When are we going on strike? And then there was this one that would be like, oh no, the, the union's ruined my dad's life. You don't understand. It's like, oh, I think I know why they ruined your dad's life. And I'm not sure I'm sympathetic. But it's, it's sort of really tragic to see the directions that, that things have moved in India. I really, once upon a time, I felt like India was this model for like moving towards a sort of, you know, secularist, you know, multi-ethnic democracy, and instead it's like pre-Trumpist. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly true that, uh, I, I mean, I share Sean's kind of uh, uh, depression. It's in the uh, direction of Indian politics, considering that, uh, and, and considering this example of uh, this, this, this vibrant uh, tradition of the Indian left and of, of, of resistance. But as, as Forrest was saying, one of the things that, that strikes me about this is that, 
as a as a media as a, as a person who's always thinking about media um uh and, and runs a small outlet one of the things i've been thinking about a lot recently is just how non-existent coverage of vastly important global stories is in the american press i mean americans are basically essentially the rest of the world doesn't exist in the american press it does it, it might it's not it's not real um occasionally if if something truly catastrophic uh happens it gets two minutes um but it really is the case. I mean, we know there have been studies that have sort of shown the value of a life by country in the American in the American press. Um, but it's, I mean, see, I, I don't think we necessarily notice that there's actually been a real serious change. Like CNN, for example, uh, they either they either completely shut down CNN International or they or they gutted CNN International, which used to be a, a, a serious part of their operation was international news. Um, but of course, um, it's turned out that people wanted to watch Donald Trump. So uh, because they want to watch Donald Trump, um, because they don't want to hear about Indian politics, um, they're never going to find out uh, that, and, and the, I mean, it's almost worse with coverage of, for example, Mexico, where things that are 10 feet on the other side of the U.S. border are treated as as non-existent. Um, and, you know, this, this is, you know, hundreds of millions of people in, involved in something hugely consequential for, for global politics. And just, and, and the, the U.S. publication that's covering the most is Jacobin. Um, you know, a, a small uh, socialist bi-monthly, right? Um, it's it's really just such a disgrace. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking, so I'm glad you devoted a few minutes to it. Even even like Al Jazeera got gutted and moved to like an online, a mostly online uh, service, which I think for for a long time people got you know most of their international news from there. Um, at different times, like I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of of coverage of uh, of global uh, global news in uh, in U.S. Uh, U.S. outlets. Um, so uh, Nathan uh, is uh, is the of course the uh, the editor of uh, Current Affairs until uh, very recently. Uh, he uh, he was also a uh, columnist for The Guardian. I, I don't know if, I mean, like, if this is recent enough, I don't know if his Twitter bio has been updated yet. Uh, so this is, uh, and, and this is a, this is a significant thing. I, I should say, uh, you know, you, you wrote a, uh, you wrote an article about this uh, in, uh, in current affairs. People, people can read uh, for, uh, for some of the details. I think uh, Forrest has that too uh, as a, uh, as a graphic. Uh, but you know, I think some people maybe have the uh, the very mistaken impression that if they see someone's name a lot uh, and, and there's some sort of media organization uh, attached to them, uh, that they are um, that they are just like rolling in in, in money from this. That they uh, that so that like you know being the editor of Current Affairs means that you have like the the Scrooge McDuck pool of gold coins to. Uh, uh, to, to swim around in, you know. <laughs> from, There's from, an impression that left media is far more lucrative than than left media, in fact, is. Yeah. So this was so so this is like a significant portion uh, of your of your income is what you're getting from. It's about a quarter. Yeah. I so yeah. I did the column. Uh, so I made about uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, fifteen thousand yeah. dollars a year from the Guardian. Yeah. 
Uh, and and this is also, uh, you know, I, I thought it'd be good to have a little overlap from from Sean because uh, when they they fired you, um, part of the uh, part of the uh, their explanation of it, you know, when, when they end up uh, they ended up acknowledging the issue and and publicly acknowledging it. The uh, the original email from the uh, the Guardian editor said uh, private and confidential, uh, which which I think is a classic. Not anymore. <laughs> Which is a classy thing to say, you know, when when you're uh, uh, when you're you're firing somebody for um, you know for extremely controversial reasons that uh, you know that oh uh, you you just lost your job by the way don't tell anyone. Uh, I think it's, I think it's um, this email, right? This is the one. Uh, that would, that's the second email. That's, that's the email right. I said. That, that's the uh, the toadying. Uh, obsequious email I sent in reply to his original email where I realized that my job is on the line and promised to delete the tweets and behave. Uh, didn't make a difference, but uh, yeah, uh, so, so they did no publicly acknowledge this. Part of their part of what they said is, yeah, okay, sure, he was a columnist, he's no longer a columnist, uh, and yeah, it was totally because of this tweet, uh, which we'll we'll get into what the what the tweet was, but uh, then. But said that, but they're not firing you. That was the that was what they said because because uh, yeah. you don't have a real contract, which is an interesting. Well, no, this is why it's kind of interesting to have uh, uh, Sean here because it, it struck me. You know, my first thought was this was an issue about uh, uh, the the free the. Palestine exception to free speech, which is very much true in the media. But as I was writing the article and thinking about exactly what happened, it was also clear, very clearly a story about just employer power um, and a kind of fascinating example of how that works in media, where when the editor emailed me and said, you know, I'm very dissatisfied with your tweet, um, I realized that basically I had a choice where I needed to either delete that tweet fast or lose my job. He didn't say you were going to lose your job. He just made sure that it's clear that he was pissed. And I think, well, is this, are these tweets worth $15,000 a year to me? Would I pay that? Would I lose that money to keep these tweets? And I don't want to die on the hill of a joke tweet. And so I look back and I realize just how like panicked I was realizing that they had, that the Guardian essentially had complete control. If they told me they didn't want me to tweet something, um, there was very little I could do unless I was prepared to um, just say, you know, go fuck yourself. I don't need the money. Um, and and the fact is that I am only I was only able to write about this in such detail and really just burn my bridges and torch the place because I have another gig. I have current affairs and it pays me enough money that I can live on and I don't need another newspaper column. Um, but that's about, right, that's power, right? I had an independent source of, 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 of power in the form of money. Um, and so I could do that, but the uh, but the Guardian really had such control over me. And the Guardian uh, is unionized, right? The staff, the full time staff, have a union, but the columnists don't. We don't have contracts. They can fire us any time. And in the statement they put out, they go it's like, "He says he was fired. He wasn't fired. We, yes, we terminated his him as a columnist, um, but but they have no job security." <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is, and, and of course, uh, as as non-trivial, you know, as as this is uh, for, um, you know, for somebody in, in your your position. I mean, like actually, actually, I think reading the story, I I I started feeling a little 
uh, physically panicky because I could over identify with, you know, with, with what this might feel like, uh, you know, sort of stringing together a bunch of, um, of things that, that none of them have that, that kind of job security. Uh, but, uh, but this also, of course, as you say, you know, you're in a relatively okay position compared to a lot of people. Uh, and, and this is something that's, that's been a, a theme of, of a lot of Sean's work uh, is that the, it would be, uh, that the labor movement uh, should more aggressively pursue uh, the, you know, well, maybe legal strategy in some context, certainly at least the rhetorical strategy of, uh, of talking about uh, free speech in the workplace. And, I mean, and just like the idea that you have a right to your job is, I think, a thing that we lost. Um, a lot of the early labor movement in America was based on the idea of like, you owe me something, boss. Like you can't just like, oh, we're done, you're out of here. Um, and so I, I think some of that, I think a lot of that notion did actually like wind up in the 13th Amendment, the one outlawing slavery and involuntary servitude. It was this notion we were fighting for. And in the drafting of the original National Labor Relations Act in 1935, it was actually a real fight. Um, and again, back to the AFL and the CIL being opposing labor institutions, the CIL being closer to Roosevelt and looking for big sort of institutional change, whereas the AFL had more of this tradition of like, no, workers have rights and we gotta, the AFL was fighting for you should root the NLRA in the 13th Amendment and we should be fighting for a right to your job. And it's completely gone. And partly in America, and like in America, our rights are even worse than, than, than those in the UK. Partly because, you know, um, uh, 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 we had such a smashing success in those New Deal years and in the World War II years where, you know, uh, job security got tied to a union contract and we got to the point where, you know, one in three workers had a union. And so the other two out of three, most employers just sort of matched those benefits. And so people generally had job security in this country because it was just the right thing to do or the smart thing to do or the like the thing to do not to get sued. And that has clearly gone away. Um, and it's got, I mean, you know, in, in the last, you know, in this century, um, employers have been acting with impunity to the point where this idea of just cause as a, as a job right is gaining traction. In the UK, I think that it is a law on the books, but the UK has been drawing from America's labor laws to find all these carve-outs, right? And like, and this is, as we're debating this idea of, of you know, I mean, what, we just, we just got you know, we just got job protections, you know, just cause protections for like a couple thousand fast food workers in New York City. And, you know, like, we're going to see how enforcement works on that. California, the great liberal Mecca is terrified to introduce this. We're so far from that. Um, but, but what we're seeing in the rest of, of the world are these sort of neoliberal carve outs to this notion of a universal job protection and the employers are just having, having, having a field day with it. Um, have you, have you read uh, capitalist realism by Mark Fisher? Um, Sean, I, I haven't. Oh, uh, well, 
has this theory and well not theory but he's talking about um like the idea of post-fordism being like that 70s moment where um kind of the manufacturing industry starts to deindustrialize and also kind of the the idea i guess the propaganda and the idea that um workers uh are kind of taught like workers kind of think well bosses kind of propagandize to workers that they don't need job security as much as they kind of need options and there's the idea that kind of in some way like the propaganda kind of got to uh workers as well flexibility because, i think they call it yeah, yeah. yeah i mean it's, it's all out there but also it's all such clear horseshit at this point <laughs> i mean you know uh, even before COVID, you know, <laughs> unemployment rates were so low that it's like, oh, all, all of our, our spreadsheets and our economic theorems indicate that people should be getting raises. But it's like, yeah, except one company concentrates its jobs in one shithole, you know, county in Mississippi. And then you have monopsony power. And yeah, like people have no... There is no mobility when there's one boss in the city. Like we've we've reinvented the company town. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, we should have thrown in uh, monopsony in the uh, in the Glenn Beck article when we were teaching we were teaching uh, basic economics. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I always like it when economists are trying to puzzle out. Well, it says here that wages should be wrong? increasing, but they're not. <laughs> Which is just like, I mean, just hand them the Oscar at that point. Like, it's just, it's just really great acting. Like, are you kidding me? Do you really believe this? It's also what happens when you detach class as a concept, and when you detach kind of power from economic like theories. Yeah. So all of a sudden, like things aren't within, like it's within worker or it's within employers' interest not to give raises, like to make the most money possible. And, yeah. And if you're not thinking that way. Like, if you're not like, well, you know, work, like money should be going up. And it's like, but not if someone decides it's not in their interest and has all the power in that situation. Yeah. And, and not if, and, and some of this is also just like, you have these very simple a priori models that uh, in all sorts of ways, you know, don't map on in any kind of like micro way to the real world, like the same way that uh, the, the models will say, that you know, people that uh, companies will will respond to increased demand by with like short term price increases, and they'll really just respond by leaving a lot of unfilled orders, you know, in the, in the warehouse for a while. Uh, but in this case, it, it is certainly an issue about class power. Uh, but I, I, of course, oh sorry, Sean, did you want to jump in before we? Yeah, I mean, I, I would. I mean, what I mean, one of the main things I, I I'm really pressing on in 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 my book is like you know, how we have to get these sort of like all in systems of labor rights and, 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 and representation, because as much, if, if things are based upon your right is tied to your job, this is where these things start to flow down. Right. And like, there's a union at the guardian, right. But like they can find these carve outs. Whereas if you could find ways where it's like, this is what every writer deserves for this this you know whatever economic tier that this publication falls into um and there's going to be courts involved in enforcing them that gets a lot closer you know and like so much of what went wrong with with labor in america was everything was tied to the job and because the 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 courts like carved out these major loopholes where like the bosses could 
you know, they, they, they were entitled to make these major decisions about their economic bottom line. Things got subcontracted, things got offshored, things got, you know, farmed out and it just get carves out. And so even as we're in this moment, we're like, you know, we're gently starting to slide into this debate of like, do workers deserve just cause protections? The whole framework in America is still one where it's like, it should be based upon the job that you're at and based upon whether you are technically classified as a full-time worker. And it's like, well, that's how we just all are going to wind up as freelancers and it doesn't matter anyway. It also leads to the, to the Biden thing, I guess, where, um, he his big like concern trolling thing about medicare for all was like oh do you really want to give up like your union health care that you fought so hard for i'm i'm, I'm less mad at him that i am at at the, the, the mayo pete i think mayo pete was like the most just the most dishonest fucking grub in that whole debate i mean everything <laughs> was just so no argument for me so dishonest yeah. And also, like, I mean, I worked for a labor center where, like, building trades apprentices are learning on the job and earning a college degree simultaneously. And, like, his whole, like, oh, it's one or the other. It's like, no, it's not. Get the hell out of here. Uh, yeah. And, and I should I should mention, by the way, uh, you know, small, small tangent, but uh, for uh, – uh, I think the uh, the definitive uh, Mayo Pete uh, article was. <laughs> I hated him so much. I wrote ten thousand words about him. I started reading his memoir. Way more than I, uh, I, I don't know if there's anyone in politics I've hated more than this man. Yeah. By the uh, way, how does he deserve a memoir? Like, who the fuck is publishing this? Like, at the time he ran, he already had a memoir. bestseller for us. Bestseller. It sold. It sold. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, that article is uh, is all about Pete. But I, I will say though, on the subject of of Biden's use in the primary of that argument that oh, Medicare for all means that you're going to lose your great your union health insurance coverage. Uh, what I immediately, you know, well thought of uh, is having read this book, "Tell the Bosses We're Coming" by Sean Richmond. I know that part of the reason why uh, the uh, the labor movement uh, switched gears from their previous strategy and started bargaining for, for health insurance was the unfortunately very mistaken belief that if employers were saddled with uh, having to provide insurance themselves, they would stop opposing single-payer national health insurance because uh, they would have an economic incentive to support it. Well, it wasn't quite that. Actually, Nelson Lichtenstein digs up this amazing quote from like the, I don't know, the 1948 CIO convention. It, it's in his biography of, of Walter Ruther. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, Walter Ruther and the CIO unions were really wedded to a social democratic vision of expanding social security to cover healthcare. Um, and one of the things that happened during the war is that um, dur during that wage freeze, um, the War Labor Board said, well, but you can bargain for, you know, uh, 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 for, for, um, for fringe benefits. And it was mostly the AFL unions that bargained for fringe benefits. And it's mostly the AFL unions that started getting health care covered by employers. The CIO unions held out for a really long time. 
1947, 1948, where they're just like, you know, and maybe 1950, like by the time that like Eisenhower is is president, and so you got a Republican House and you got a Republican president, and it's just like we're not we're not going to touch the Social Security Act for a number of years, and a delegate on the floor says we can't wait ten more years. We have to start bargaining for health insurance in the next round of contracts. And that's what that that's what's amazing to me is our American national solution to healthcare was a five-year compromise on a 10-year problem. And and now you got you got like Mayor Pete and Biden holding it out as like this, 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 this like um you know, like this, this is, this is, this is what we're about. This is why we did it. It's like, no, it was a, it was, it was, it was a patchwork. It was never meant to be this. Um, and that, that, that was an argument though, that was used. I, I remember that, right? Like, or, or did I just make that up for the, uh, for the book when the CIO uh, came around that employers would, uh, would support national health insurance if they had to pay for it? I, 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 I'm not recalling that it could be, I mean, you know, it's been a while, but I could forget um, I, I definitely, I mean, the unions that negotiated health insurance were in the 1960s at the forefront of fighting for the original Medicare Act. Um, and, 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 you know, sort of, and, and part of it was, part of this was, it was like, oh, if we could get our 65 plus people off of our health care plans, it's going to save us a bunch of money. And that was like a little bit of a, of a deal with the devil on the 65 uh, 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 Medicare Act. Um, uh, and, and, but in terms of unions today, the dynamic that I see is um, there, there are unions that have these sort of multi-employer healthcare plans that give them real power and actually aid in their organizing. And then there's unions that, in, that, that bargain healthcare one-on-one with their employer, where they just deal with healthcare as a thing that's thrown on the table as a concessionary item on day one. And so, you know, we saw um, the culinary union, local 227 of Unite Here, um, sort of try to come at Bernie during the primaries on this issue. And they're, they're a winner in the healthcare politics of, of, of the United States. That um, any non-union hotel, restaurant, or casino in, in, in Las Vegas if they sign with the union, they probably save money on their health care costs. Um, and I knew this from New York. I used to work for the, the, the New York Hotel uh, 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 Trades Council, um, where, you know, if it was a hotel that had 100 employees and it was non-union and we went on strike against them, we came to them. It was like, here's the actuarial tables and we could save you like five bucks an hour in healthcare cost if you sign with us. There's this major game. Meanwhile, like if you're in the communication workers of America and you're bargaining with Verizon and that's your only employer, Verizon comes in on day one saying, this is how much more the premiums are costing us. We think you should pay us $1,000 more a year. Here's what your copay should be, et cetera, et cetera. So it is like a real uh, winners and losers system. I, do, I am firmly convinced that if we don't have Medicare for all, it's going to be very difficult for the labor movement to gain new members and to win new shops. But the, 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 the power politics of the AFL-CIO 
it's really dominated by the unions that are winners under the healthcare system. Unions that have these these multi-employer uh, uh, healthcare systems where it actually does help them organize. That said, you know, uh, my good friend just became the president of the New York Hotel Trades Council Union, and there there are very few hotel workers with jobs right now. And I know that he he spent six or seven months doing round-the-clock round bargaining over healthcare premiums to keep their healthcare clinics. They pay, the, they pay the doctors. The doctors are on salary for this joint labor management fund. Um, and it was just, it took everything in them. And I think they eventually, like, they worked out some deal where everybody's going on Medicaid. One day when he's not still doing round-the-clock bargaining over healthcare, I want to get him out for drinks and just see if like he still thinks this is working for them. Um, because unions like that are the ones you got to flip to get the entire AFL-CIO to say, we need Medicare for all because this is, this is killing us. Because it, it is actually killing us. But it's killing some of us quicker than others. Well, on that note. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we're all going to do it. Uh, Sean, <laughs> you've got to come back a bunch of times. Uh, please, everybody, uh, buy his book. Uh, it is uh, Tell the Bosses uh, That We're Coming. Uh, you can uh, buy it, I know, from, uh, I, th I think, you know, you can, well, you can buy it from all the usual places. You can buy it from uh, from Powell's, I think, which is at least a union shop. You could uh, directly from Monthly Review Press. Uh, directly from monthly review press you can buy it from red emma's which is a worker-owned bookstore in baltimore you can you can buy uh books from online uh but uh but everybody buy sean's book uh sean please do uh come back very soon uh known sean for uh, for for a very long yeah, time please come back to my dining room table the first chance you get yeah. <laughs> let's do some trivial pursuit or something yes uh <laughs> post uh <laughs> post plague we will absolutely do that in the future when all is well Yes, absolutely. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. Now, um, the, uh, the the labor law, job security aspect aside, the uh, the, the real question uh, is uh, is whether, in fact, uh, Nathan's uh, you know Nathan's firing would have would have, would have passed just uh, just cause threshold because of his uh, wildly horrendously anti-Semitic tweet. Uh, so uh, let's do. Uh, do you have for us, Forrest? Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. Let's look at the. <laughs> there it is. There okay. it is. Uh, did you know that uh, U.S. Congress is not? So this is about when the uh, the COVID uh, relief, the the grotesquely inadequate COVID relief was being passed at the same time. There's a bunch of new U.S. military aid to Israel, uh, and so so Nathan tweets out this this honestly, very mildly jokey tweet says, uh, did you know that the U.S. Congress is not actually permitted to authorize a new spending unless a portion of it is directed towards buying weapons for Israel? It's the law. And then, this is my favorite part, or if actually not the written law, second tweet, then so ingrained in political custom as to functionally be indistinguishable from law because even <laughs> when we figured this out, the thought crossed his mind, oh my God, what, you know, if somebody takes well, this, someone so naive, or operating in bad faith, 
Well, you know, you and uh, Katie Halper on her show the other night uh, put me on trial and yeah. uh, exonerated me on anti-Semitism judges, but confl- conf- uh, um, convicted me on offenses to comedy, a comedic malpractice for explaining the joke after telling it. Yes. Yeah, I, I stand by. Uh, I stand by. <laughs> uh, she I, I called st- me today and asked me if I saw that, if I watched the stream, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't get a chance to." And then she's like, "Watch it, watch it," and like put it on. I guess Instagram was like really excited that she had thought of doing that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I should. Uh, I should say that I'm. I'm part Jewish. Wasn't raised as anything. I didn't. I didn't want to make these caveats because I didn't want to step on her bit. Uh, and and be convicted of offenses against comedy myself. Uh, I, I might also, as I pointed out at the, uh, I did point out at the time, I might be. Um, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I think I would be wildly disqualified from any actual tribunal on this subject. But I do think uh, you know since since uh, since I I know I've, I've known Nathan you know for a while. Uh, we we wrote an article together. He blurred my book, but um, uh, but. I mean, this is a very strange because 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 I, I, I want to get into you know I want to get into this a little bit uh, because because this is a deeply strange thing this the uh, the first charge you know the anti semitism charge uh, and because uh, on the face of it this is just bizarre I mean this is like saying if if you I mean if you said um, if you're complaining in, in, in parallel terms about uh, U.S. military aid to uh, the House of Saud, you know, would that be Islamophobia? Would anyone even say that that was Islamophobia? Uh, if if you were if you're complaining about uh, the you know U.S. Uh, backing of uh, the the semi-fascist Modi administration in India, uh, you know, well, actually, some people. Yeah, no, they no, they would jump. Well. On. They would 100 No, but this is the thing. This is the thing is that this is often used to uh, exempt governments from criticism, this charge of singling out the idea. And in fact, the editor said in the email to me that I was singling out the only Jewish state. And a, a parallel to it is actually the way that the United States immunizes itself from criticism by calling people anti-American. This has been one long been one of the main charges levied at Noam Chomsky is why do you single out the United States for for all of this criticism? You must hate America uniquely. You must be because you're critiquing America. Um, and so that's that's a that's a great way for any country to say, well, you know, why why are you picking on us? You must have some sort of strange bias against us because you didn't talk about every other country simultaneously, which is impossible. And yeah, feeds into the woke the woke discourse of you know when it's when it's at least Israel or when it's I mean pro Modi troll accounts are actually really good at doing that. Too. Yeah, well, I, I was going to say I actually do. It, it struck me as I was doing that last yeah. week, uh, that when um, people were, in my view, rightly criticizing Tulsi Gabbard yeah. for, uh, for her um, being, you know, making you know some supportive comments about Modi for laying the you know a wreath on him. Uh, she, uh, that's not the right word, but whatever, you know what I mean? The garland, whatever that was. Uh, then, uh, there, there were people saying that, uh, raising this issue was, was like anti Hindu, you know, prejudice. Yeah. I had the misfortune of, uh, of managing the TMBS YouTube channel while 
the the simultaneous Tulsi Gabbard criticism videos were going up and Andrew Yang criticism videos were going up. The the two the two most most well adjusted uh, groups of yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so do you have uh, Forrest? Do you, do you have the uh, the emails uh, from uh, from the for the Guardian editor? Because because I think yeah. Well, I I can also I can just pull them up on the um, actual article. I feel like might be the easiest way to do it. I have them as its own thing, but um, yeah, I have the one that isn't the. I, <laughs> I assume you're not going to read them in an Irish accent like Kenny Halvard did the other no, night. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I am not going to make any. Uh, uh, but but if anyone does want to hear uh, the email read in an Irish accent, um, so far as if you could just scroll up to the first email from uh, okay. the original email from John Mulholland, because this is my reply to his original yeah. email. Oh yeah, there it is, private and confidential. Yeah. Private and confidential. <laughs> so you, much for that. Can you, uh, can you expand that for us? To yeah, go? yeah. Is that is that a little bit better? If yeah, you click it, it should go full. Uh, I think it, it. There we go. Yeah. Hi there. So Nathan, <laughs> hi there. Uh, as oh, you, uh, in fact, to be more legit, we experienced this. Uh, we experienced every time anyone reads this, I get the pit in my stomach again that I got when I when I opened <laughs> this email the first time. This is trauma uh, therapy. As you partly present yourself as a guardian columnist, I, uh, I, I think what he means is that in the in like the Twitter bio and things like that, uh, it listed the things you do and it listed one of those. Um, but yes, but note that there's this weird, subtle, like almost suggestion that I'm not a guardian columnist, that I'm like <laughs> presenting myself as a guardian columnist. He says that twice, I think. Present present yourself and and uh i i thought yeah, well, that, that was your actual, <laughs> official title yes i mean like that's yes the, i yeah yeah my title was columnist it says on the website the nathan robinson's guardian u.s columnist <laughs> as you partially present yourself as a guardian columnist allow me to express uh my concern when you make an assertion such as this which is the first amazing part of this that uh is, is, is treating what I mean, I, I I just have to think that anybody who's made out of human parts understands as a joke, as an assertion. Uh, no such, no such law. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, clearly, clearly, Nathan, you thought that this was an actual law, but but just just to be clear. But th thanks, thanks for that. <laughs> there, there's there's no actual law uh, saying this. In which case, this is as one might say, if you know. That's I, yeah, as, what, that's an interesting way to put it too. As one might say, fake news, irrespective yeah. of the later tweet, uh, where you say it is indistinguishable from law. It is not law. Irrespective. <laughs> so it doesn't matter that you even committed this offense against comedy and said, just to be clear, that was a joke. I know it's not a law. No, because it's irrespective of that. Yes. Somehow. Yes. Uh, given the reckless talk over the last year and beyond of how uh, mythical Jewish groups slash alliances, and it's funny, that's in quotes, although I don't think that's actually a quote from anyone, but who knows. Uh, yeah, what reckless, what is he talking about? Like, is he talking about just general anti-Semitism? Like, was there a particular... Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very curious, actually, about whether he thinks he's, <laughs> he's quoted somebody or... Um, 
this might be referring to like the the Ilan Omar smears that came out about like yeah, Omar said you know actually use those 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 uh those words oh no not not as a quote I'm saying um just trying to I guess place yeah. it because he says uh oh I thought he said within the last year yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, given the reckless talk over the last year. So it's a little unclear why in particular the last year. Um, I should also say that The Guardian uh, does have a uh, history of uh, of going along with, with this sort of thing that, that the in their uh, the British incarnation, uh, they, they were very much, you know, part of the, uh, you know, smear campaign against uh jeremy corbyn uh on the uh on the same charge so it's possible that he's throwing a lot of different things some of which are maybe actually anti-semitism some of which might be obliviousness to anti-semitism some of which might just be just made up bullshit about anti-semitism into whatever he's referring to as the reckless talk over the course of the last year maybe uh, you heard something at a party <laughs> <laughs> Uh, over a mythical Jewish group slash alliances yield power over forms of U.S. public life. I am not clear how this is helpful uh, to public discourse, and we could pause here to ask uh, whether it's great for employers to uh, be uh, to be making determinations about whether everything an employee tweets is useful to public discourse. My that my tweet mandatory that all of my tweets be useful to the public discourse. I mean, if that had been the standard, just to point out, I should have been fired like the day I got the job, right? Because well, Twitter, Twitter itself is is detrimental to public discourse if we're well exactly if that's the standard we're gonna hold tweets to then then everyone should be fired <laughs> yeah and yeah. that is the liberals ultimate goal everybody everybody fired yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that's a yeah right i mean obviously um there'll be one person employed and there'll be a hr rep yeah <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, no, it'll, it'll be amazing. Actually, you should just have like instead of like just hitting post when you finish composing a tweet, what you should hit is submit, and there'll be a process to determine whether it's useful to public discourse. Useful to public discourse, and then and and no tweet will ever be posted again. <laughs> That's right. And I'm not sure why singling out financial aid to Israel in a tweet uh, and devoid of any context, which is also interesting because. You know. Context, which is really easy to put in a tweet, is the context of U.S. foreign aid. Yeah, no, I mean those those two hundred eighty characters. You've you've got plenty of room to uh, to put uh, all the context anybody might want to <laughs> how the budget process works, the history, of, you know, <laughs> the U.S. role in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, so it's devoid of any context. You didn't include any of that, and without mention of aid to other countries. Uh, either currently or historically, uh, is a useful addition to uh, to public uh, discourse. So the the just, public discourse. Yeah. So, the, so the claim uh, is that in that tweet you should have brought up all the other countries that the U.S. Uh, engages in in uh, in military uh, in military aid to, even though uh, one. I think that there is there is actually a disanalogy here, which is that uh, American politicians, you know, they they certainly give 
you know, they certainly vote for military aid to lots of places that I wish they would not vote to military aid to, uh, but they don't go on and on and on about what an important point of principle it is for them to uh, to to give this aid. Right. Like, uh, right. Like, I mean, undeniably. I didn't create the special relationship with Israel. That's not a function of my tweet. That's a function of United States politics. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden's the one who said if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. And Nancy Pelosi's the one who said if Washington, D.C. crumbled to the ground, the last thing that would remain is our support for Israel. <laughs> exactly. Uh, like, uh, uh, Flip in the uh, in the comment says, uh, "Why did he single out Main Street for his walk?" <laughs> uh, which 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 does does kind of get to the the core of the issue uh, because one of the fun things about this this uh, what about all the other countries' defense, which as you say is is often used as a defense of, of U.S. policy or a way to accuse people of of you know being anti-American for opposing it. Uh, and was used uh, in the uh, the seventies and eighties uh, by defenders and and representatives of apartheid South Africa uh, to oppose the uh, the movement for divestment from South Africa. So why why are they singling out South Africa? You know, lots of countries commit human rights abuses. Uh, so so what's you know what's so special about South Africa? Which the fun thing about that is because you can literally always play that game. Uh, so. If you can't criticize anyone when you could criticize someone else instead, like the end result of that is that you just can't criticize anyone. Uh, you are free, of course, to use Twitter. <laughs> you are free to be fired. <laughs> yeah, right. Which which actually <laughs> does does get to you know what does get to a really important yeah. point and and one that. Uh, that I, I think goes back to, to some of the themes from the conversation with uh, with Sean, uh, because I mean that that's not much of a um, like you're free to do this if you want to keep your job is is not uh, is not very reassuring. Yeah. Right? Like like this is this is a point that I remember you made in your article. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, when that Janice decision we were talking about earlier was uh, was being considered, uh, that the argument that conservatives use to um, to support right to work laws to oppose, you know, have you know, making people pay agency fees, is that if you make somebody do something as a condition of your job, of keeping your job, having a job, then they're not free to not do it. Which fair enough. Yes, the, is the only context in which conservatives ever deploy that argument is to say that mandatory union contracts tied to employment are coercive, but mandatory any other requirement an employer could ever impose not coercive. Yeah, because you could always just get another job. Uh, but somehow the you could always get another job argument doesn't apply to uh, mandatory. Doesn't apply in the union context. Uh, you're free, of course, to use Twitter in whatever way you choose, uh, but it uh, dismays me that someone who presents themselves, again, presents themselves, again. Uh, as a Guardian columnist would make, uh, as the Guardian website does, uh, would make such a clearly erroneous statement without, as I say, any context slash justification. John Mulholland, Guardian, Editor-in-Chief, and then there's this little extra thing below it, uh, Lotus, is, little land yap, as we call it in New Orleans, for that word meaning a little something extra. <laughs> Saying that the only Jewish state controls the most powerful country in the world is clearly anti-Semitic. 
the myth of Jewish power informs murderous hatred. Delete this and apologize, which is actually quite a, like a, I mean, that's that's a hell of a shift in tone for the little something extra at the end. Uh, but you saying <laughs> the Jewish people are a weak people? Like, you know what I mean? Like the myth of Jewish power would imply that, that Jewish people are powerless. What, yeah, what... <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so, so it's it's also like the the remarkable thing about this is in the, neither of those tweets was there anything actually about like there was any sort of causal claim about why there's this U.S. special relationship with Israel. There was only an assertion of no. the fact that it exists. All the only thing that I suggested was that U.S. politicians give a hell of a lot of weapons aid to Israel. That's that's basically that's the joke of the tweet is that we give so much weapons aid it might as well be the law that we have to like we can't give COVID relief unless we're also giving weapons aid right that's that, that's the joke we just give it law I didn't say if it's legitimate if it's I mean it's a critique implicitly but actually like it could be that I just think it's a slightly lower priority than than COVID relief. Right, yeah. uh, but I still support it technically from the tweets. Right, uh, uh, you know, as I say, yeah. there's no, there's no context, so you could interpret that in a way that isn't actually particularly unfavorable to Israel, but is just talking about U.S. political priorities. Yeah, and, and, and like I think also, I mean, again, it's a completely separate discussion. Like the assertion that these are American political priorities that politicians by their own constant explicit statement do care very, very much about arming and funding Israel to the hilt. Uh, that, that fact is a, could be asserted without th having any opinion necessarily about why it is the case. And it's probably like very complicated and multi-causal. Uh, I point out that uh, that's that at least one of the causes uh, is that uh, evangelical Christians, uh, right-wing evangelical Christians, are a huge voting block, and and uh, and are uh, on the whole extremely committed to this policy. Uh, we could talk about U.S. strategic interests. This is like the Chomsky explanation of of why this exists. You know that that are they're sort of served by having that, um, you know that that state that's very you know that that hyper militarized state that's very dependent on the U.S. Like there is a kind of watchdog in the region. And yeah, you could talk about uh, pro-Israel lobbying groups, which is what Ilhan Omar got in trouble for. And I've always also thought it was hilarious that in this one context, you're not allowed to suggest that lobbying works, uh, and and that there is a reason why people spend a lot of money on it. You know, because because it is actually quite effective. Uh, but whatever you think about that, you weren't asserting it. And the thing that gets me about this especially is that this this rhetorical strategy saying that the only Jewish state in the world, you know, et cetera, et cetera, is anti-Semitic basically allows you to say, allows Mulholland to say, people, you know, who have Mulholland's views to say that because Israel is the only Jewish state, that means that any criticism of Israel that has any sort of superficial resemblance to anything that, you know, anti-Semites might say about, you know, Jewish people, you know, in general, is thereby anti-Semitic. And we can just skip the whole question of whether any such assertions are, uh, are true or false, which is a very common thing that I've, like, like that people will say, you know, 
oh, it's like a blood libel to uh, to say that the you know Israeli military has committed various war crimes, that it's absolutely committed, and and it's an incredibly sleazy thing, and and you know, yeah, and, and honestly, one that that I find, uh, you know. I mean, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm going to break my usual habit on this. I, I, I will end with an as a, right? You know, that they, uh, as someone who, who does have some Jewish background and has been the recipient of an occasional anti-Semitic, you know, remark in my life, because having inherited these striking Ashkenazi good looks, you know, that's, that's most people's first guess, uh, you know, about my background. Uh, I, I think, like, it's it's incredibly sleazy and dangerous because it cheapens the actual charge of anti-Semitism. It makes people well, seriously. Yeah. Mostly, well, it's true. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm just going to say many many of the most you know anti specifically anti-Zionist people that I know are Jewish. Like, uh, you know what I mean? That I've known in my lifetime. Like, you know, uh, like a lot of Jewish people have very very real, very pointed criticisms of Israel and well, are, are yes. not. Yeah. And they resent being held held responsible for the actions of the Israeli state and having them done in the name of Judaism, um, which which they find uh, really really appalling. Um, you know, you know, one of uh, uh, this this is this is what motivates, for example, the anger of someone like Norman Finkelstein, who is you know viciously critical of Israel. Uh, but who comes from the perspective of being a, a, a Jew whose family, entire family, other than his parents, perished in the Holocaust, and his parents were both in Auschwitz, and and he gets very, very angry at the suffering of his, the suffering and death of his family being used to cover up and paper over and, and justify and rationalize uh, things that he finds to be a, a atrocities. Um, and I, I think that anger is, is, is quite understandable. I don't agree with everything he says, but I think the, like the source of his like emotional anger is, is very, very understandable to me. Uh, ben, as the, as the sort of, uh, as the left's uh, kind of resident logician, um, you can see kind of how the 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 the, the, the ugly kind of sophistry here, which is, um, you know, it's saying that uh, that Israel. So Israel is powerful. Israel is the only Jewish state. Therefore, um, the uh, the you, this is the myth of Jewish power. Right. So if you say Israel is, is powerful because Israel is the only Jewish state, therefore you're saying Jews are powerful. Therefore, you are engaging in anti-Semitism. And so on the kind of implicit logic. Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's I right? mean, this, this is a version of the, the, uh, the, of the fallacy of the undistributed middle. It's 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 literally like saying that uh, that cats are mammals and dogs are mammals. So dogs are cats. So, so you can see here that if we accept the logic underlying Mulholland's kind of argument, which he doesn't really make explicit, the, the, the logic here, we can never say that Israel is a powerful country. We can never say that Israel has strong influence over United States politics because Israel is the only Jewish state. Therefore, this is the myth, the myth of Jewish power. Um, and so it's, it's, really, it's really ugly. And the implication of it is essentially, if you take seriously what underlies uh, what he's saying, the actual argument, if you try and figure out what the argument is, it really does immunize Israel from criticism. Yeah, it does. And, and again, you, know, you, you can and it has been. Uh, applied to all sorts of you know of of criticisms you know that you say uh, if you say 
uh, you know, it, the Israeli military, you know, has, you know, murdered, you know, Palestinian children, which is the same sentence that, that you would also correctly say uh, about like the American military and Vietnamese children in the seventies or something like that. Uh, then, uh, then people have and, and will, you know, come, come back and say, Oh, well, well, this sounds like, you know, uh, medieval libels about, uh, you know, Jews killing Christian children. Uh, and, and, and it's, again, it, it really, it really cheapens the accusation of the real thing, which is ugly and serious yeah. and not going anywhere. Uh, and, I also think that the, the point about Finkelstein and all of that does does get to something important, uh, which is that it, it's important to to recognize that uh, no ethnic or religious or cultural uh, you know national community is a hive mind. They all are divided into different uh, ideologies and and, and different. Uh, uh, you know, different class interests, you know, different, et cetera. And, and I think that, um, and, and look, I think sometimes we on the left, you know, fall, you know, fall into, uh, to this too, that, you know, that we take anything that, you know, member of group X says as representative of the group X view on that subject. Uh, but it's, it's a very, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a bad thing to do in general, and and it's also a uh, it's also a silly thing to do, and I think you can see it in the way it's sometimes weaponized on the other side in uh, in these discussions. Like to to pick a non-Israel example, uh, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago when the uh, you know when there was the uh, attempted Guaido coup in uh, in Venezuela, uh, seeing at least one uh, daughter of a uh, of a wealthy Venezuelan. Oh God, that was. That was fucking ridiculous. Saying that she was tired of having American, like white American leftists, try to Venezuela explain to her, uh, you know, by that by was, that was fucking ridiculous. That video I didn't... opposing the coup, and, you know, and this is something that that can be done in uh, in any number of directions. And and I don't want to push the point too far because I think that there is a legitimate, like, I think sometimes people are saying something legitimate, which is basically you know, think about ways that not have having had certain experiences might blind you to certain things and fair enough. Right. Like that's, that's, that's a, that's, that's, that's not a wholly illegitimate thing, but the, you have to defer to me on this subject because I'm a member of this group thing uh, is something that runs, you know, yes. As, as our graphic designer, J Andrew world says in chat, uh, Jewish people aren't the Borg. Uh, there, there are, there are, you know, the individual human beings with with different political opinions, uh, as is the uh, as is the case with everybody else. I think. And Adolf Reed talks about, um, I mean, in the black community, not the Jewish community, but he talks about it in depth in uh, class notes when he's talking about how you know, I mean, he's criticizing Cornell West at, at the moment because it was before Cornell West kind of had his uh, come come to the left moment, I guess um, later on. But it, it's how he he criticizes white leftists. Um, in this case, for kind of seeing um, seeing everything through a mediator, and and liberals as well, seeing everything through that mediator that kind of has to translate some like the language for you, and it's always a member of the bourgeois, and it's always somebody that has a vested interest in the status quo remaining the way it is. Like, I don't know. That, that's I mean, that was a, a part of the uh, part of class notes that really stuck out. To yeah, me. yeah, it is, it is kind of funny that that Reed and West used to. Uh... Uh, used to have like some some really bitter political polemical exchanges because yeah. now 
You um, devoted three chapters to it in uh in class notes. I mean yeah, at now, various times. <laughs> now they're actually quite close. Um so uh any case, uh Nathan, uh you know, final uh final thoughts about uh about the uh the Guardian and, and your uh um and and this like like I, th- I think we've kind of gone through well, this, this this absurd yeah. email. Uh, and and, and think, the, yeah. yeah, please. Well, the real the real uh, uh, disturbing thing, of course, is that you know I so he they fired me and they made it clear that it was about the tweet, even though I deleted it and even though I groveled, uh, it didn't help. So don't grovel first because you know they'll fire you anyway. <laughs> That's my one regret here is that I I apologized to him because I thought I could keep my job. Couldn't keep my job, so shouldn't have apologized. Shouldn't have said what I did. Props really you mean. for keeping that part in there. You could have just. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't make me look very good. It's a little. It's it's shameful, but I wanted to show kind of how the, the kind of pressure that there is on you to uh, say things that you don't really believe in order to appease your boss and and uh, and make them lay off you and not fire you. Um, so, you know, I, I, no, I don't look you're, great. You're, you're, but I you're, you're about to, uh, uh, you're seeing an email that makes it very clear that you can, uh, that you're about to lose a massive portion of your income, uh, you know, based on, based on a whim. I mean, if, if, I mean, yeah. like, I, I, I don't know that that's that that much. Uh, I, I mean, I you know, I, yeah. I, I agree with, you really, with what yeah. you're saying, but I, I can certainly I can certainly understand how how in that moment, well, hell, is there anything I could you know I could do to uh, to make this you know uh, to to get out of this you know because because save it's my not, ass, yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's, it's <laughs> no. not worth it, you know, <laughs> like like but I can. It's completely it. no. completely understandable. It's just you know, I mean, still putting yeah. it in there is a is a. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm human. I um, I, what I but what I think is so alarming is that, um, you know, I I haven't seen and uh, forgive me if there are any exceptions because I don't I don't scroll through Twitter obsessively. So I have not seen other Guardian writers uh, protest my fire. A lot of people have been very kind. They sent very supportive notes. A lot of um, people have <laughs> switched their Guardian subscriptions to Current Affairs, uh, which is very nice. Uh, but I haven't seen Guardian writers saying anything uh, about this uh, publicly. And I understand why. Right, because they're uh, the, he has the same power over them that he had over me, which is that if they tick him off, they're gone. That's their right. So they have to make a calculation right now, which is you know, are they willing to give up their fucking writing career for their, pro- their this prestigious post um, for the sake of you know something that isn't going to go anywhere? It's not going to get me um, my my job back. So I I think it's important to recognize that the people who are still at the Guardian, I've been fired, but um, are really under the thumb of of the editors, even though they're a union company, because poisoning your relationship with them just it it hurts you as a, as a writer. Um, and the Guardian is such a gatekeeper because they are the most progressive paper, and this is important. They're not a reactionary paper. They publish articles critical of Israel, right? It's not like they publish nothing nothing against Israel. They they do. Um, but the Guardian is this gate, but they want to have complete control over and, and what their writers say. And 
it, and don't say anything unapproved, and they're very, very sensitive to possible charges of anti-Semitism, so they want to carefully police what they put out about Israel. And it means that all of the writers who are still there are under constant threat. They cannot, and now that I have been fired and made an example of, all of them know that if they tweet the wrong thing about Israel, they're out. They're gone. And, and immediately, there's no opportunity. You can apologize. You can delete it. It doesn't matter. You're gone. And Mulholland is watching your tweets, right? And I don't, I, I'm not sure who his uh, UK equivalent is. He's the US editor. Uh, but he's watching. And so they know that. So I think it's, a, it's really important to bear in mind that everything you see written publicly, every public statement by someone who is affiliated with this institution is being screened. And they all know inside their heads that if they say the wrong thing, they can be terminated. And so just bear that in mind, that there are things that they would say that they are not saying because they know what will happen. Yeah, and that was, that was the thought that I kind of had uh, reading this article the first time was how many people have kind of had careers buried that haven't had, you know, that don't have editorial freedom at, at a, you know, even if it's not a publication of the same size um, to publish whatever they want after the fact. I'll tell you, I'll tell you far as people have contacted me since this and told me their stories and they do not want me to tell their names. They don't, they don't even want me to publish their stories anonymously. Some of them are bound by non-disclosure agreements. Some of them just don't have non-disclosure agreements, but they just need jobs in the future who are telling me the, you know, very, very similar things happen to them. But it's a rare person who is in the position to just torch their relationship with um, one of the most uh, prestigious and powerful newspapers in the world. Because you're not just, I'm not just torching my relationship with The Guardian. I'm making it basically so that I won't ever, I mean, maybe, I'll, I don't know. There might be some rogue editor who, who, who likes it. But, but having shown that I'm willing to disclose an internal email like that means that, you know, no sensible editor is ever going to want to work with me because uh, they, they know that I am a, I am, I am a, a loose cannon. Or so, you know, unless you can afford it. Or at the very least, they'll give you a very restrictive non-disclosure agreement or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, like yes, right? Uh, you know, if I get another contract, right, it's probably going to have terms, and I'm going to have to decide whether I'm willing to abide by those terms. There are, there are other things that I know that have happened that I've seen in institutions that I can't talk about because they'd have consequences for people. Right. And I don't want to hurt people. I want people to understand how the media really works. But because of how power works, I can't give an honest accounting of of what is going on in these institutions because everyone is under threat by the boss. Yeah. So it uh, turns out that uh, flexibility is uh, is not actually, <laughs> uh, is not actually good for uh, for the vast majority of, of people. And uh and, and among, you know, very many other things and, and the many, you know, uh, ways that it, it makes people's lives absolutely miserable on the bottom, you know, tier of, of the economy. Uh, it's also uh, it's also very bad for uh, for media just just on its own terms, you know, because because if you if you want people like if you want to have the sort of media culture where people are a great, you know, are. Uh, having like an aggressive, you know, debate, you know, about, uh, you know, what's <laughs> the Dave Rubin thing, high level ideas, uh, then uh, that you don't, <laughs> uh, that you don't actually want people, 
you know, to uh, to be constantly looking over their shoulder because because they they know it's going to be really easy to uh, to to fire them, and and that even even something like a tweet, you know, that's that that takes like most people think about tweets for like three seconds before they post them, uh, and you know that they uh, is obviously outside of work context, you know, they can be fired for, and you know, and and, and I think that like especially. If you want that kind of media culture, I mean, Nathan is is exactly uh, who you want to to be uh, to be uninhibited because because there's no like like anything that you the fact that he's gonna write stuff like the you know the ten thousand word you know uh, takedown of, of of you know Mayor Pete or various you know conservative uh, you know media you know media figures. I mean, if if you want your sort of High level debate about ideas in the uh, in the media. That's what it looks like, and so I think for that and many other reasons, this is a very uh, ominous uh, story about the uh, the Guardian. Uh, please, uh, you know, subscribe to. Uh, oh, yeah. We have a we have we have a, a brilliant ad right here. Oh yeah, this is appearing in the latest issue of Jacobin. We found out that they take uh, they do print ads, so we thought, oh, we should buy an ad for our rival magazine, and we shot this ad that has now appeared in Jacobin. <laughs> yeah, I'm in it, as you can see. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that is an amazing ad. So uh, please do uh, please do subscribe to uh, to Current Affairs uh, if you uh, if you haven't already. Uh, you know they absolutely deserve your support. Uh, thank you, Nathan, uh, for uh, for coming on. Pleasure as always. Well, well, thank you. To, uh, thanks, Ben. Thanks, Forrest. Uh, yeah, having, having independent, independent media, media is just, it's just the only way you have real free speech. Right, right. Building, building independent power centers, and that's why you know the more people that support your show, the less under threat you are by any other jobs that you have, and the more people support your show, the more we are able to tell them the truth because it gives us it gives us freedom to do that. You're muted. You're muted still. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thank you, Nathan. Uh, always. I'm not, I'm not allowed to tweet about Texas, or uh, David Griscom said I'm not allowed to, you know, edit any left reckoning clips anymore. Oh yeah, yeah. No, fair yeah. enough. I've, uh, I've, been, I've been censored. I've been so I, I complete solidarity on that one. <laughs> fair enough. All right, <laughs> let's, let's let's stick on the intermission music for just a minute, and then we'll bring on David. Okay.
All right. Now uh, joined by our uh, friend and comrade, uh, David uh, David Griscom. Everybody better savor this. This is the uh, the last dose of Griscom we're going to have for a few weeks. Uh, then uh, then he's going to be back. Uh, how are you doing tonight, brother? I'm doing I'm doing uh, pretty good. I have to say. Yeah. Uh, just been uh, you know fielding calls from family, uh, you know back home too because this storm is really been crazy in texas but uh um you know everyone in my family has been able to get uh into shelter and warmth but man it's crazy people been out haven't had power all day yeah yeah my actually my uh texan in-laws uh are uh are without power right now and it's 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 uh and uh my wife was saying that they they said they're you know they're fine it's it's just you know it's just kind of cold i was like oh yeah come on what, what, are, what are they calling cold because you know this is like the tip of South Texas. I just figured mm. they, you know, like they were being ridiculous. She's like, I don't know. It's like 30 something. It's like, oh, wow. That's like actually cold. Yeah, man. It's like 10 degrees <laughs> in, in a lot of the state. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been rough, but yeah, who knows, man? Crazy, crazy weather we're, we're seeing these days. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fair enough. So, um, and, and I should say, by the way, uh, I, I hope in general, uh, that everybody who uh, who watches this is is subscribed everywhere you can subscribe to uh, Left Reckoning. Uh, but uh, I was on the show uh, last uh, Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun. So uh, so you can uh, you can check that out uh, on on YouTube or uh, or everywhere that you uh, that you get podcasts. Uh, we were uh, we were talking about. Uh, Tech censorship, which which ties into uh, what we were talking about this uh, this episode with uh, with Nathan and Sean, uh, but uh, I you know it is outlaws and revolutionaries. I've, I've poured some whiskey. Let's uh, let's talk about music. Yeah, man. Um, this this week I wanted to talk about one of my personal favorite albums, and it's one of those albums that. Uh, most people uh, who who listen to this kind of music might not be familiar um, with. Uh, it's an album by uh, Rusty Kershaw, um, who is some people might know the name more from the work he did with his brother Doug Kershaw. They're the people behind uh, Louisiana Man, a real serious uh, uh, Cajun style Louisiana music. Um, but he's done a he he sort of as somebody who was in the limelight for a very brief moment, uh, ended up recording some stuff uh, and touring around with a Neil Young. Uh, but Rusty Kershaw uh, sort of fell out of, of music in large part for a long period of his life. Um, but in this kind of moment where he was just sort of literally just working jobs like an electrician, uh, sort of just in and out of the, you know, of the spotlight, uh, just comes out of nowhere with this album called occasion in the blues country and it is by far one of my favorite albums i've ever listened to uh, not only because the music's good as hell but it's just such a such an interesting journey and the musical range um is is absolutely incredible i'll admit i uh, i discovered this this album for the first time through uh you know one of my favorite country music podcasts the tyler mahan co um cocaine, uh, called and, cocaine, and, Ryan, cocaine and rhinestones which is a phenomenal podcast um, and I had, I'd never really heard, I, I'd heard of, uh, Kershaw before. Um, and obviously I'd heard like those classic super intense Cajun songs, which I have a little bit of a soft spot for. 
Um, but I wasn't familiar with Rusty's music or his album, and I've been dying and trying so hard to get a vinyl copy of it. And I have not been able to find one yet. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the Kershaws are cool, man. It's like they're just real, uh, real uh, uh, Cajun boys, right? Real Louisiana guys. Uh, you know, didn't speak, didn't learn English until they were like seven or eight. Uh, real country Cajun, uh, Cajun folk. Uh, sort of got their start in music when they were like really young too, like around seven or eight. Um, going into town and, and playing fiddle and music for people, eventually having their parents sort of smuggle them into different honky tonks and bars, uh, you know, to pay for, to pay for you know dimes on the dollar, um, you know, and that's just one of those things that sort of sets you up for a very interesting life um, if your formative memories are playing music for people in those kind of locations. But yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> What's what's cool about them, and you know, is that you know being Cajun for a really long time was one of those things that was looked down on, right? You know, you're backwater swamp people, you don't speak English or you don't speak it well, right? Um, and they were really uh, famous for their song "Louisiana Man" and a few other pieces that they put out that really kind of flipped the script and you know did what a lot of you know great music does, uh, which was taking pride and and who they are and their history and their culture. Um, and it's such a cool, uh, you know, it's such a cool thing to be able to see that throughout their life and also like how they lived that kind of like Cajun mentality, um, not just in explicit ways, but also being uh, people who very much were soaking up the culture around them. Uh, one of my favorite lines, uh, and why I think that I really like this album, which I'll get to in a second, yeah. uh, is, um, how eclectic it is musically. So like Doug Kershaw said, uh, when we started playing the bars, uh, we also began to learn the songs off the jukeboxes. We didn't have a radio or a record player uh, when I was growing up. So jukeboxes were really important to me. Um, I learned to play it all. I still love to pl play Stardust. You know, there were no labels on the jukebox. It wasn't country or jazz or Cajun. It was just music. Yeah. Um, you know, which is, which I think is exactly, you know, which is exactly why these two guys are so great in particular Rusty. Um, you know, so Rusty uh, and Doug, they start this band. It's super famous. They're, you know, big stars traveling around. And, you know, it was one of those things that could have just gone on forever. Well, but Rusty just started to get this itch. And uh, this is his explanation for it. Um, why he just ended up leaving. And he didn't just like leave and go off and try to do his own solo career of music. Like, he left and just got a job as an electrician. Like he went into like everyday, everyday life. Um, but he said, I just couldn't stand the grind of, grind of Torin uh, and the same set every night. I like to play from the top of my head. Once you practice and get all those parts stuck together, um, that's what you've done. You're stuck. It takes the life out of it. To me, it's, oh man, we got to play this motherfucker again. <laughs> um, you know, so he skip, you know, he splits from his brother, becomes an electrician, Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to go very well for him. Uh, he, you know, develops pretty severe alcoholism, uh, ends up in jail, goes to rehab, and then he comes out of nowhere um, with this with this album, "Occasion in the Blues Country," um, which it, it starts off one of the the second song on the album is the song called "This Day and Time," um, and it's one of the most soulful blues songs. Uh, frankly, one of my favorites of all time. I mean, just like real deal. Uh, like if you were seeing this at a bar, it'd be like everyone in the room gets quiet and they listen to this wow. person just like seeing their their truth. Um, but what's so great about this album is like you have that, you really get drawn in. And then 
next track comes on and it's a real deal country fiddle uh this great cajun song called fisherman's luck um you know he's singing about how he's you know fisherman and he's you know not having the best time uh, he's caught everything from a turtle to a cat um, he's not catching any fish right so it's just like this pretty you know traditional cajun song next jam uh, comes on keep on trying it's like the psychedelic mind-bending guitar uh, playing the super funky song um sweet peace of mind uh it's just an incredible merging of piano and steel guitar it's a real jam man uh charlie daniels uh, by the way is playing you know guitar on it um then he does it and then another really great song called uh uh country boy uh what happened to the country boy did he take his blues to town and that's just another one that's like a real like serious like honky tonk old school country like he almost sounds like doug song um mm. and that's why that's why his, this album and rusty in particular is just so cool it's like you're just like these are four songs that are almost in completely different genres right but it's like it's music as he's saying earlier right it's just like it's it's music and he's being able to pull all these different styles to together without really saying okay like i have to fit into this one this one box i'm just like expressing all of these things that uh you know you know affect my life and and how i think and, and you know my art um you know and then uh, you know a couple other songs like love city and the country boy which follow that um are almost like identical musically um, and they just play one into the other, and it's uh, a pretty interesting uh, jam, especially the way that it ends with uh, Country Boy, because it's very much a song that's about fame, um, you know, not being what you expect. He like, sings, like, I got a new guitar, I got my name in lights, uh, why can't I hold you tight? Um, then he goes on, there's more great, uh, you know, Charlie Daniels rocking on the guitar on it. Um, just, just a really phenomenal album that really just starts with the bang and just like keeps you hooked all the way through. Um, so it's definitely like high up on my list of things uh, for people to check out, even for people uh, who might not uh, like most of the other country music that I suggest. This one's real like swamp rock uh, blues uh, mixed in with some really fun Cajun stuff. Um, but you know, he's an interesting guy and for people who like like Neil Young. Um, he was hanging out with Neil Young when Neil Young uh, recorded on the beach. Um, there's a story that he got Neil Young into honey slides, um, which is powdered weed and honey. Uh, <laughs> so he's a you know just a just a very interesting guy. And I know that when he there's a really good story that he tells that uh, Tyler Mahan Co um, adds in his podcast where um, you know Rusty was playing with Neil Young in this band when they were doing all these recordings and they're in this like this studio and he's feeling that it's like extremely stale right because it's just a room with you know the microphones that everyone's supposed to play and he's not feeling the vibe um so he like starts throwing a, a fit and makes them all go out and get used furniture uh, to put into the the studio he said i said this this shit is too spiffy we got to get this like your living room man sitting real close together like we're at home either that or let's put on some suits <laughs> Um, so you can just sort of see, like, he was a very fascinating, fascinating guy through his music and also his life, uh, just sort of going into all of these different, different chapters, but had a real, um, you know, serious, like artist mentality about this kind of stuff. Like he gave up playing, uh, you know, being a kind of famous musician because he didn't want to play the same songs his whole life. Uh, he definitely had, you know, the kind of demon that most great artists have, which is booze and, and, uh, and drugs. 
but seemed to beat it at least for Tom Bean. Um, and, and also just somebody who understood the creative process. It's just like, I can't, he was just not somebody who was going to be a studio musician and just like go in and like, okay, here's your notes, play it. Uh, he needed to have that kind of like creative juices and energy flowing, which I think, um, is, is a really, really cool thing. Um, and that album, I have to say just one more time for people, uh, Cajun in the blues country is by far one of my personal favorites of all time. It's just, it, it just draws you in. And every time you listen to it, it's one of these things that's so hard to talk about these albums. But if you hear him just the way that he sings on that first, um, on that, that second song, sorry, this day and time, he right. sounds like just like the most incredible, you know, soulful blues musician, uh, which he is. And then the next very next song, just super Cajun country accent all the way through. And it's just, it's really cool to see somebody be able to play all these different roles on just one album. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's awesome. Um, so any, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I should say like, like I, like I mentioned earlier, you know, this is the, uh, this is our, uh, our last dose of, uh, of Griskin for a few weeks. We'll have to, uh, uh, we'll have to do something special for, uh, for, for when you're, uh, you're, you're settled into, uh, uh, to where you move in and you come back, maybe we'll, we'll do something along the lines of the conversation we had with Matthew Sittman a while back. Yeah. Uh, but, um, any, uh, you know, give, uh, want to give people some, uh, you know, if, if they want to, uh, you know, if, if they want to try to get the, get that, uh, outlaws and revolutionaries fix in your absence for the next few weeks, uh, you know, want to, uh, re- you know, recommend a, a few, a uh, few albums that people could try. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll just tell people, um, if you haven't been listening to uh, Coulter wall, um, he's, he's somebody who's very interesting, uh, a good, very soulful, uh, too, in the same kind of vein, uh, Canadian, uh, cowboy singer, um, really, really inspired by like, uh, Delta blues, highly suggest him. I've been really enjoying, uh, Hayes Carl, uh, who's a, you know, Texas based. I love Hayes Carl. That's like yeah, he's fun he's, as hell. One he's, of the few, uh, country artists I actively listen to. Yeah. He's awesome. He has some really, really funny songs. He left um, Jesus is like, which is a hilarious song for people who aren't familiar uh basically it he you know they don't make it explicit but it sounds like the kind of just like drunk rantings of of some guy at a bar yeah and he's basically like working up the confidence to go and kick this guy's ass yeah um because his girlfriend left him Uh, but the person is jesus he's like he's probably a commie and like all this kind of stuff it's a great jesus and that just ain't fair he says that he's perfect how could i compare uh should find him and i'll know peace at last if i ever find jesus i'm kicking his ass there you go i love it man yeah it's a good jam it's a really fun song oh nice all right uh love you brother um love you too man all right Thanks. Right, talk to y'all later. Talk to you later. All right. Uh, so I want to uh, do a, a few things before we uh, we close out the uh, the episode uh, for today, and we will take um, you know if there are more super chat questions, we will take a few of those uh, at the end. Uh, and and I know we also wanted to go back to the earlier uh, questions uh, about the uh, the pro act and, and and fill in a few yeah. of those. Feel yeah. a few of those details. Did that, you see the tweet though that I sent you though? Um, yeah, Fauci. Fauci won a a million dollar defending science prize from Israel. I don't know. I just felt like it was the perfect uh, 
we did the, we were talking about Israel today, and the uh, last week's uh, Patriot episode uh, was, um, you know, was about uh, with Sam Adler Bell, who co-hosts Know Your Enemy with Matthew Sitman. Uh, we were uh, we were talking about Fauci, uh, and and of course tonight we we're talking about Israel. I should say that uh, this week's Patriot episode, you know, that I played a little bit of at the beginning, but it's a really good discussion. Uh, with uh, our friend Micah Utrecht from uh, from Jacobin about his nation piece about the uh, the great Mike Davis, and it's a really good like if if Davis is somebody who might like vaguely be on your radar but you don't know that much about him, uh, I, well I mean Micah's piece is like a really good overview of his body of work. Uh, you know Micah did an insane amount of reading to uh, to prepare for writing that article for the nation. He basically spent the summer reading nothing but Mike Davis. Yeah. Uh, and uh, apparently, apparently, when we were doing the stream the other day, um, that that he was like trying to get like that he was trying to uh, dip out of when we when we ended up going out like two and a half hours. He had like a like a long novel to read for a piece he's writing, and I was talking to Kale about it, and Kale's like, "Oh, he has a he has a long novel he's supposed to be reading." <laughs> <laughs> you know what the novel is? I no, he didn't. He didn't okay. tell. Me. Yeah, um, but it, it's a really good like synthesis gives you a really good overview of, of Davis's work, which is uh, which goes like over the course of a few decades of getting a lot of really depressing stuff right in terms of uh you know predicting the the collapse of the housing bubble the continued decline of the labor movement uh predicted in a uh, 2005 book that he wrote at, about avian flu predicted that uh the next time there was a, a big pandemic that the uh, public health system would be totally prepared unprepared for it uh is is called the uh the monster at the door uh, and uh, there was a tw 2020 reissue uh, called The Monster Enters. Um, and and then going into the way that Davis is, um, that, uh, that all of the sort of, you know, themes that Davis has been working on, you know, through in, in these, these big, thick books that he's been writing about ecological and economic and, you know, and public health, you know, crises that, you know, he, he hasn't uh, traded in any of that for blind optimism, but, you know, but in the last couple of books, he started to uh, see a little bit of sign of hope, you know, from, from, uh, from Bernie, from the emergence of DSA, from all of that. Uh, and so it's a really, it's a really good, interesting media discussion for those things. Uh, yeah, I know Jason Miles. Uh, yeah, yeah, he recently interviewed him. Yeah, uh, and, but it's also just fun. And actually, it's probably a good companion to that Jason Miles interview of of uh, Davis himself. You know, because of some of the uh, the stories about Davis uh, that are in Micah's article that we talk about in the interview. Like, um, there's this really uh, important and prominent act. Like when uh, Davis was work was. Even though he's been this incredibly important historian and scholar, he never finished graduate school. He spent a lot of time driving a truck. Uh, he had, uh, and he also worked for a long time at uh, New Left Review, where like one of the stories about the New Left Review times, there was this really famous and prominent academic historian who wrote in to complain to them about uh, about the reception his work was getting at New Left Review, and it was uh, and the response that Davis wrote was literally. Uh, Dear Professor Genovese, go fuck yourself. Mike Davis. 
And like there was something where he got really mad at some editorial decision and he actually dumped out this like this this like uh was it this like poisonous it's like poisonous snake and this carnivorous toad and stuff onto the floor of the uh, new left review office. So, uh, what was the what was the catalyst for Micah writing the article? Just that it's the pandemic and that his work kind of seems. Um, yeah, so so I, I think that was probably part of it. Uh, I, I think he also just went on this deep dive, uh, writing you know reading all of these Mike Davis books and and you know and he wanted to uh, to kind of do this this overall appreciation of his. Um, you know, of his body of work. Uh, and anyway, so it's, it's a really interesting, you know, article. And I mean, it's, I mean, look, I, I just had something in the nation and, you know, and, and that was like a very short piece, but like this, this thing that uh, Micah wrote, uh, it's the printout of, of his article is 22 pages long. It's, it's this like in-depth thing about this thinker's whole body of work, but it's also one of the most popular articles uh that's in the nation in the last few weeks. Yeah, so, yeah it's on their front, their front, uh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, so uh, you can get, uh, if you uh, join the Patreons, that's patreon.com uh, slash Ben Burgess. So you can get that, um, you know, we'll obviously run in a preview on Thursday, like we always do, but you can get that full interview with Micah about the uh, the Mike Davis piece. Uh, you and uh, you can also uh, you also get you know a Thursday episode uh, every week uh, and then uh, there's there's also um, uh, there's also the discord uh, that you get and we do regularly at least once a month you know this discord office hours group voice chats uh, and also uh, I should say this week this this coming Saturday we are trying out uh, something new. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, last week with Jason Miles uh, about the uh, the about Fred Hampton and that history with the Black Panthers and the Young Patriots. By the way, the the PBS documentary on um, on uh, the Rainbow Coalition that they've been kind of talking about for a while. I guess that's finally available to stream um, publicly on the PBS website. Um, I I've been trying to watch that for like months. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but there's the, uh, the, the Fred Hampton movie that just came out, uh, Judas and the, uh, the black Messiah. Uh, so we are going to, uh, be, uh, we're going to be trying something new on Saturday. Uh, we're going to do a, uh, live, uh, showing of that on the, uh, GTAA discord, uh, for, uh, for patrons with, uh, commentary, uh, by by me and Forrest, uh, also Jason Miles, uh, also uh, our friend Jeremy Salmon from uh, the Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person podcast, and I think possibly a fifth person, although I don't remember who we we're talking about. Uh, no, she said she couldn't make it on. Okay, all right, all right. But, so anyway, yeah. uh, me and Forrest and, and Jason and uh, and Jeremy. Uh, so that should be uh, that should be a lot of fun. We're doing that on uh, on Saturday. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, we've been doing the uh, the regular, um, you know, Wednesday uh, movie podcasts, uh, movie uh, live streams on the YouTube channel, and uh, oh, and of course, also the uh, the regular Sunday ones took off this last Sunday because of Valentine's Day, but that's back on uh, this Sunday. Uh, we're uh, having Ryan Lake and Mark Warren on. We're going to be talking 
uh, about uh, we're going to be talking about um, we're going to be watching and commenting on uh, William Lane Craig's uh, debate with Shelley Kagan uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we watched the William Lane Craig debate with Hitchens a couple of weeks ago. And so we thought it'd be good to watch since, uh, you know, Hitchens, whatever complicated feelings we all might all have about him uh, did not do well in that debate. But so this is one where I think the tables are turned on, uh, on Craig. And also it's part of my preparation for something I'm doing uh, the day after that. So uh, that debate, uh, Sunday debate breakdown series. That's that's this Sunday, uh, the uh, the twenty uh, the twenty first, and on uh, February twenty second on the Modern Day Debate uh, YouTube channel. I'm going to be uh, debating uh, Doug Wilson, kind of about the same topic as the uh, as the William Lane Craig uh, Shelley Kagan thing. Um, and Wilson, somebody who also debated Hitchens a bunch of times. He's a uh, extremely conservative uh mega church uh pastor uh i don't and, know why you're platforming him yeah 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 so I, I got a uh i got an email this morning and this is always funny to me when i do this when i get these because it's not that i mind like I, i'm always happy to get communication about whatever but it's always kind of funny when instead of like and, you know whatever I mean, i've got the website with the contact thing whatever but like when people track down my day job email to uh, to let me know uh, something like this that uh, they somebody somebody tracked out my my day job work email to uh, uh, let me know that it was bad that I was platforming Doug Wilson by agreeing to debate him, which is hilarious uh, because uh, because that look that church where Wilson is is a pastor like. They have their own magazine. They have their own little theological seminary to train pastors. They have like everything you can imagine they have. They have. Uh, he debated Christopher Hitchens a bunch of times. He did a, a book of battling essays with Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he uh, he wrote so many other books that his Wikipedia page is like longer than most articles that I've written. Wait, he wrote a book with Hitchens or about Hitchens? Uh, with Hitchens. It's like battling back and forth. Oh, so it's like, yeah, it's dueling essays. All right. Yeah. So all I'm saying here is uh, I don't think him debating me is going to be his big break. Uh, but uh, I, I also generally think that platforming taboos are ridiculous and, and they generally have the effect of uh, of like cutting us off from, from audiences of persuadable people and also yeah. handing the right a talking point. Look how afraid they are uh, to, uh, to engage, uh, to engage. Also, with isn't, isn't Jesus platforming us all brother? <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of, uh, got a uh, super chat here from uh, RXT says that a thousand patrons would do debate a libertarian hammered and Duran Astin. It would be a great promo. Uh, Adam Kokish would be the ideal libertarian for this. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll uh, hey, if, if Adam wants to, uh, maybe we'll, maybe after the pandemic, we can, uh, uh, you know, we can, we can drop some acid or take some mescaline or, you know, something that uh, we can do it on his home instead. We can do a uh, debate about libertarianism and socialism. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> his arguments might actually start to make sense if you take enough acid. I don't know. <laughs> This is my this is my house. This is my this is this is my my land. It's sovereign. And you're like, you know what? All right. Like, aren't we all just kind of sitting on sovereign land? Like, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, hey, I'm down for the uh, the the psychedelic uh, gardenia debate. Uh, any of the uh, you know any of the times I uh, I did uh, 
you know, may or may not have done things like that early, earlier in my life. I didn't do anything nearly as interesting as that. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so then, uh, so that's all coming up. You know, the debate breakdown live stream with Ryan and Mark is on Sunday. Uh, and the, my debate with Doug Wilson is on, uh, on Monday. Uh, and, uh, it's, you know, it's more of an abstract philosophical debate, but, you know, I think it also does get to the heart of the stuff he uses as the, as the basis for his political arguments, uh, actually, that one would be a, a fun one to do on some sort of psychedelic, but uh, but we're not going to do that on Monday. Uh, but so, on Monday, so you're doing that on a different platform? Are we still having a? Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I'm doing that on a different right. platform at five. Uh, and oh yeah, we have. A, I know. Should, right. I was, yeah, I was, five Eastern, and then then we should be we should be ready to. I should be done with that and able to come back and do the episode at seven thirty. Uh, our guest is going to be uh, the great Emma Vigland. Really looking forward to that. I haven't had her on in a long time. Uh, on Wednesday, uh, we are uh, going to, um, so this Wednesday, day after tomorrow, uh, we are going to be doing a Wednesday movie uh, live stream about uh, RoboCop. Uh, so that I should be, yeah, That should be really fun. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's with uh, Jason Miles, Forrest, uh, and uh, Micah Utrecht. The full, the full prompt is uh, RoboCop as as what a uh, neoliberal how-to manual, I think yeah. <laughs> the full, the full title that Jason pitched us. Yeah. So, so it's kind of funny. I've, I've been doing, um, you know, we'll see. Uh, I mean, I've obviously seen RoboCop, but not lately. So tomorrow night I'll, I'll rewatch it and uh, we'll see if I can get uh, Jennifer to, uh, to, to watch it with me. Uh, it's, uh, it's possible since uh, I've been, we've been going through this, like, this thing that's uh, like a, this, this book of prompts, you know, for like watching 52 movies in a year. And uh, so she, she said she'd consider it if we could find one that would fit into. Uh, and, uh, and I, I could, cause there was a, uh, cause you know, we're in Michigan and one of the categories is a movie set in your region. <laughs> so yeah. uh, of course, RoboCop is, uh, is set right. in yeah. Detroit, <laughs> uh, a, a near future Detroit, uh, with a uh, with a private corporation uh, taking over policing, uh, given a general horrified neoliberal dystopia, so obviously very unrealistic stuff, hard to take seriously. And you know, it's it's at what in the middle of the the Bush era, like at the tail end of the Reagan era, um, kind of set around that. Um, something that I found out, uh, yeah, nineteen eighty seven, I think. So like yeah. the tail end of the Reagan era. Yeah. So so, so something interesting that I guess. Um, I read on like Wikipedia when I was talking to Jason about it on Twitter. Um, I guess uh, the director, and I forget the director's name, but he um, oh, he he didn't like he he almost didn't do it because he like turned it down multiple times because he didn't really understand the satire. And I guess his his wife had to explain like the the satire to him, and then he was like, "Oh wow, that's funny. All right, like <laughs> that's hilarious." Oh, so uh, lots of uh, lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, please do. Uh, oh, uh, we're talking about the Patreon. We should do Andy's uh, promotional comic. Uh, so we uh, didn't do the uh, the most recent one uh, last week. Uh, so um, J. Andrew World, the uh, very talented uh, graphic designer who does all the thumbnails for the show, has also been doing this series of uh, Pulp Fiction themed. 
uh, comics to uh, to promote the uh, give them an argument uh, Patreon. So uh, since uh, this is a little bit of a um, uh, you you kind of have to know Pulp Fiction pretty well, and and also to have uh, watched or listened to the show enough times to have heard me, uh, you know, make the joke about the uh, five dollar milkshakes at uh, Jack Rabbit Slim's from uh, Pulp Fiction, which is the uh, the same as the monthly cost of uh, of the Patreon. So uh, the comic you see, uh, the Gimp from Pulp Fiction, uh, enjoyed a milkshake with Archie from Archie Comics, uh, and then dancing, and then uh, uh, you know because they do the like dance competition at Jack Rabbit Slims in Pulp Fiction, and then Archie says, uh, "See, you should save your money for Jack Rabbit Slims." The Gimp, who of course doesn't, you know, uh, just just sort of mumbles through his, his Gimp mask, says, and uh, and Archie says, "You just had to ruin a great night by bringing up, give them an argument with Ben Burgess." Didn't you? <laughs> so, yes. uh, but uh, please do, uh, please do do that. Um, and and we have the Libertarian Superman one. I don't think he's finished with it though. Um, he sent it to me last week. I don't know. We should, I guess we should wait till uh, Jason's on to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should wait till Jason's on to yeah. do the, uh, the Libertarian Superman because he uh, he requested that. Uh, that's... Hold on, hold on. Is that Zed? Is that the... Uh, yeah, I've seen Pulp Fiction so many times. I should know this. Zed, Zed yeah. Zed is the guy that uh, that owns the pawn shop, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the guy with the motorcycle, and then he rides off on it. He says, Zed's dead, baby. <laughs> yeah, there we yeah. go. <laughs> Um, so yeah, please do, um, yeah, please do, uh, do, do that. So again, uh, patreon.com slash, uh, Ben Burgess. Uh, so, uh, five bucks a month, get the uh, patron bonus episodes, get the, uh, the discord server, uh, get the, uh, monthly Sopranos bonus episodes with Nando Vila, Wazni Lombre and Mike Racine. Uh, the last one we went up for patrons last week, probably unlock it for everybody else at the end of the month. Uh, and um, you get the uh, Discord office hours, group voice chats, and uh, and uh, yeah, if the uh, if the live uh, movie showing on the Discord uh, works out well uh, next uh, on Saturday, then then we might start doing that more. Maybe make it a monthly feature. We'll see. But uh, yeah, it'd be cool to do uh, another another Fred Hampton one, like another one of the documentaries. It'd be cool to kind of go down that that rabbit hole for a yeah, for sure. Uh, Tom from Yakubia, uh, uh, thank you for the super chats. Thanks for the marathon shows. Uh, so, uh, yeah, really appreciate everybody, uh, for, uh, you know, stuck with us to, uh, to, to the bitter end here. Uh, and- well, do the, the pro, uh, the pro act stuff really fast. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, I totally forgot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, I have one other thing I wanted to touch on quickly. Yeah, um, sure. Nope, let's we could totally do another 10 minutes here. So, uh, let's so we were talking about the pro act earlier with uh with Sean Richman. Uh, and I know there were a couple, yeah, I remember there were a couple super chat questions which were answered, but then Forrest wanted to uh to throw in a little bit more to uh to those answers. Uh, yeah, because it kind of went really fast and without really explaining. Um, hold on, I gotta I gotta get the link up. Um, yeah, it went really fast without kind of explaining the um. Yeah, how that uh, how how the pro act would have worked, which I was curious about. Um, yeah, 
yeah, now Sean's really good for this stuff because because he knows it uh, inside and out, and he has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. But I think he's also so um, steeped in this stuff, you know, that that I think sometimes he'll, he'll just kind of throw this out and and forget that uh, you know most people who consume left media don't necessarily know the uh, the, the the ins and outs of this uh, this labor law stuff. Yeah. So this uh, is a, this is a super. So I was reading a little bit of it when when you guys were talking. Um, because just in case like there was stuff we wanted to pull up and it's a, this is, this is a, a, a fact sheet. So this isn't the actual um, text of it. The actual thing is like, it's like at least a dozen pages of like really cryptic language. I mean, it's written as a regular bill, but it's like, it changes the wording in like the NLRB act. It like, cha- like, so a lot of it is just changing small words to make certain things codified into law. And um, with that, when, um, so the part that makes it so that you have uh, the strike law is literally just a word change. Um, on um, safe charge. Oh, Bilbertex, uh Yeah, um, enhances workers' right to support boycotts, strikes, or other acts of solidarity. Um, the bill protects workers' First Amendment rights by removing prohibition on uh, workers acting in solidarity with workers at other companies. Safeguards the right to strike by clarifying that intermittent strikes don't lose their federal protection. And by prohibiting companies from uh, permanently replacing workers who participated in the strike, so it's super, you know, wonky democratic technocrat language to <laughs> safeguard some of these things. Yeah, although these are, I, I mean, like the about like these are important things, you know, that the yeah. uh, that it's doing uh, that it um, that it it does like take away some of the really evil stuff that Taft Hartley does to uh, to limit workers' rights to organize, uh, even if you know even if there are important things that Sean was talking about earlier that that. No, are it's positive. It's definitely a positive. Um, it's a positive law, like by far. I mean, considering that you know we're we're getting closer and closer. I feel like to like federal right to work laws. You know what I mean? Like it it, it comes like that all, all of that like like the Supreme Court pretty frequently sides with like corporate interests. Like they very rarely side with workers in any way, shape or form. So, you know, something like this would be, would be game changing, I think for, you know, American workers within the system that we have now, I mean, without disrupting it, you know what I mean? But yeah, it, uh, it, it does a lot of protections for unions. It, um, it, it codifies the right to organize. Um, it, and, and the thing that, all right. So the thing that I was going to discuss was, um, was that it, the meaningful penalties for companies and executives for violating workers' rights, um, it's, it's up to $50,000, which if you look at it as a huge corporation, let's say, isn't very much, but it is enough that like the pushback is real from uh, the bosses that, that don't want something like this to happen. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this, this would be, um, you know, this would be really good. I mean, I think as far as like, you know, legislative reform, uh, to to make the landscape you know a little bit better for organizing unions, I, I think this is certainly. I mean, it'd be great if this happened. Uh, we'll we'll see. Um, yeah, this is the actual uh, the actual text of it. Um, the billboard. Uh, no, they, that's what I just showed you. Hold on. Um, I, I had the actual text of it somewhere here. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I of course. Uh, like I said, we'll we'll see whether it actually happens. Uh, despite the argument, uh, like for so I, I actually just wrote something uh, about the filibuster for uh, for Jacobin, 
uh, and so so just as a, just as a real like momentary refresher on uh, on that issue, uh, the way uh, and this this by the way is the uh, uh, is the Jacobin article. It's uh, it's long past time to abolish the filibuster, uh, and the way the issue that that Sean was you know that was kind of going back forth out with Sean is whether you actually even could necessarily do this uh, without uh, without getting rid of the uh, of the filibuster because there's budget reconciliation which basically says that you can pass something with just 50 votes uh, if um, you know without uh, if it has significant budgetary impact what counts as having significant budgetary impact is, is a little bit slippery sometimes uh but it's the the precedent is not great because like the uh employee free choice act uh was the uh, was the big bit of labor law reform that obama uh promised that he was going to get through when he ran in 2008 uh joe biden by the way was the person who was in charge of um who was uh who was in charge of uh of the effort to get it through and he basically just gave up right away, you know, which is, uh, which yeah. is, is not an inspiring precedent. That's big Biden. Yeah. So, uh, you know, God, reading, reading yesterday's man got me so fucking depressed a couple of weeks ago. I had to stop for like a week and take a break. Like just seeing his role in, in, in pretty much every major problem that we have, you know what I mean? Like at least ones that popped up in the last, uh, 30 years. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so an employer who commits an unfair labor practice within the meaning of Section 8A shall, in addition to remedy uh, by the board, be subject to a civil penalty uh, in amount not to exceed $50,000 for each violation, which obviously if you're somewhere like um, Amazon or something that has, you know, tons of employees and they collectively decide that you've uh, committed unfair labor practices, that could be hundreds and hundreds of, of, of settlements. <laughs> Um, yeah, which, which is what which is what Sean was talking about. That's the argument for uh, getting it through reconciliation. That you say, yeah. if uh, if like you actually started like enforcing it, getting these unfair labor practices, these ULF uh, judgments, uh, anything like as often as companies actually violate these laws, then that would generate a massive amount of money for the federal government, and, and so that would have a huge budgetary. Uh, impact so that that would be the argument for saying that you could actually pass it uh, yeah. reconciliation process smart i mean that's you know in a in, in a super uh in a super wonky way that's that's very smart <laughs> yeah uh I, I should say one of the things got into the the uh, jackman article is that it's not like this whole re like reconciliation workaround for the filibuster is not great uh because you can so like one small example, I think I got this from Dave Dan uh, of uh, of the limits of it is like, uh, you know, there's been some discussion lately about whether you can do a $15 minimum wage through reconciliation. And the argument for for saying that you can is that it would um, it would have big budgetary impacts by a uh, because people would be making more money, generating more tax revenue and B. Uh, because a lot of people would then lose their eligibility for means-tested uh, support, like like uh, you know food assistance. You know they would have budgetary, big budgetary impact that way, uh, which is which is a kind of indication of the limits of that strategy. Because 
obviously it's not great that people would be losing these things. And of course you could package together the $15 minimum wage with raising the floor, you know, raising the ceiling for, uh, for, you know, there's the means tested, uh, food assistance, but you know, we are in a pandemic. Uh, but, uh, but then if you did that, you'd risk balancing out the budget impacts and being able to pass it through reconciliation. It's uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like when, when it comes to these strategies, like, Democrats, especially like Biden, always sides with the like, oh, let's just go in the middle and try to get it passed, like, pass like, you know, the, the the straightforward way, and then they end up conceding everything in the process. Yeah, and and by the way, I mean, um, like, really, you know, earlier we were talking about George George H uh, W Bush is the Zelig of evil, you know. Uh, uh, it people don't know what we're talking about, by the way, it's an old Woody Allen movie about this guy who's, who's everywhere and, you know, all these different historical events. Uh, but, uh, this is, uh, Joe Biden's definitely the, uh, the Zelig of, of, uh, of, of great moments and, and shitty, uh, you know, I, uh, I call him the Forrest Gump of reactionary politics. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, so in that, um, in that Jacobin filibuster piece, like one of the things I ran into is the uh, classic uh, Bernie filibuster that helped set up his run for president uh, when, um, you know, Bernie gave that eight hour speech uh, denouncing the uh, the deal uh, to extend the Bush uh, tax cuts. Uh, you'll never guess uh, who brokered that deal. <laughs> Old Uncle Joe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. Well, it- crazy thing is uh his his credit card so he was going to bat this is this is something that i i posted on twitter like when i was reading through yesterday's man um his so the original uh scandal that he had with that credit card company he had a hunter working at the credit card company in delaware that was his first like pay-to-play uh version of that so he had him working in 1999 at a credit card company in delaware and then the, the they were like heavily lobbying him and it was it was the thing that got Elizabeth Warren to like leave the Republican party and go to, to Congress to testify as a law professor was, it was just such a, like a, a crooked, like dealing by, uh, by Biden. <laughs> yeah. Um, which reminds me by the way, uh, something I, I forgot uh, to, uh, to bring up uh, earlier when we were talking to uh uh, to Nathan Robinson is that there is a really uh, interesting detail that's just kind of mentioned in passing in his article about being fired from uh, for the Guardian, uh, but is uh, is worth. Um, here we go. Let me just do the uh, the quick uh, the quick screen share because I, I think it's uh, I think it's worth not letting go. Uh, so uh, this is. Uh, he says just in passing, uh, he's talking about his his previous employment at the Guardian, uh, and he says, uh, "I only had a column spiked for content reasons once, as far as I can remember, which occurred when I criticized Joe Biden over Hunter Biden's corrupt business ties." <laughs> the same as the uh, Glenn Greenwald uh, leaving the intercept thing. Exactly. Didn't didn't Glenn Greenwald also originally leave the Guardian? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Glenn yeah. Greenwald was at the Guardian before his yeah. death. He was at, it was Salon and the Guardian then uh, then the Intercept. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that the the whole the whole you know Glenn Greenwald experience at the Intercept, 
that detail about Nathan uh, at, at the Guardian, uh, even these like somewhat progressive but a little bit more mainstream uh, publications uh, <laughs> are are very defensive uh, about the uh, the Biden family and uh, and and about that Hunter story. Yeah, uh, you know, which which obviously like. As we, as are the social media oligarchs, remember that the uh, that for a while um, Twitter wasn't even letting you share that New York Post story about Hunter Biden in a DM, uh, and and so it's you know it's something that's this you know whatever I mean I don't want to make a too big a deal about it but I mean it's it's something that's worth um, you know that's that's uh, that's worth highlighting you know like like whatever combination of factors might might lead to that attitude and I'm sure look I know. You know, given when the Glenn Greenwald thing happened, a lot of it was just that the intercept in what people yelling at them for having lost votes to Biden, uh, you know, for having caused people not to vote for Biden. Yeah. Uh, and obviously with the New York Post thing, that was a lot of what was going on there with the social media reaction. Uh, you know, frankly, I think there is also a question about how much of the media defensiveness about this uh, has to do with just the idea of 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 this kind of like corrupt like low level corruption and nepotism not being something that people want to um you know to make a big deal of because if you want access to power that's something that annoys a lot of people yeah and i mean also there's i think when it comes to um specifically the 2020 election i think on you know a lot of journalists felt like trump had declared a war on them specifically so i think there's also the element of like them just wanting to get rid of him uh, you know, I because you know it, it, it got so tense between journalists and the Trump administration, which is not good. They should be, you know, uh, neutral either way. Not neutral, but you know what I mean. Like reporting the news either way. Like you know what I mean. They shouldn't. I don't think that they should be filtering stories based on that. But it does feel to me like on some level it got so tense between how journalists saw themselves and how Trump saw them that. Um, that they just, you know, a lot of like they just wanted him out. Yeah, right. And and you know, fair enough. But it's also um, media failing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also a huge failure of uh, of media. That you know, I mean, surely, you know, if you were going to make, I mean, obviously, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, being openly hostile to. Uh, you know, to, to you know, to the media like that. You know, calling them the enemy of the people, etc., is is very bad. Uh, but uh, also, look, what are you trying to preserve, right? In in opposing Trump and Trumpism, uh, if what you're trying to preserve is like a robust oppositional media, then uh, this is kind of a uh, uh, then the whole closed ranks around the Hunter Biden thing. You know, has a little bit of a whiff of uh, you know burning the village, burning the village to save it. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, you know, a lot of journalists did get legitimate, like, death threats and stuff from MAGA people. And I, oh, right, right, right. On, on a personal, like, on a personal level, I, on a, on a higher, like, on a bigger level, I agree. Like, yeah, I, yeah. you're kind of just, you know. No, I, 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 sure. I mean, you can't blame anybody for, for, for hating, you know, Trump and, 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 uh, and, and his movement. I mean, that's, look, whatever, that's appropriate. But um, I think, you know, they, but there is there is a bigger question about what we want the uh, the role of the uh, of the media to be, and 
you know, I, I think the Hunter Biden thing was a very bad side. It was also a very bad side when they did that like first press conference under Biden. And there were all these questions that were just, they were like fawning, you know, like, like, Oh, you yeah. know, are you planning to restore integrity and tell us the truth? It's like, Jesus Christ, man, have a, have a little bit of a sense of self-respect. These, these guys are not your friend. You're supposed to be reported on them in an oppositional way. I, I think though, also I'm sure for some media outlets, they let Hunter Biden through the first time, like yeah. the Obama administration. You know what I mean? Like pointing it out now, it's like, all right, well, why didn't you report this story, you know, back in 2008 or 2009? And, you know, because all these, you know, they had such a cozy relationship with the Obama administration at times. I mean, I don't think Obama felt like he had a cozy relationship with them, but they felt like they had a cozy relationship with the Obama administration. So they kind of let that slide the first time. It's kind of almost admitting complete failure if this time they're like, what about this? (laughs) For the most part, there was a cozy relationship with the Obama administration, although it's also complicated because the Obama administration actually like went really hard against uh journalists to uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think Obama saw it that way. I think journalists saw it that way. I don't think Obama yeah. saw it that way. Yeah, I think a lot of elite journalists did see it that way, even though again the Obama administration was uh being absolutely ruthless and cracking down on uh journalists for protecting whistleblower sources, uh not to mention of course the whole um you know prosecution you know like like uh persecution of assange and snowden you know it's the whole thing is it was in any remotely objective terms a, a huge threat to you know global freedom of the press but basically if the question is uh are mainstream reporters doing stenography at the white house treated like buddies uh especially yeah. by the obama administration and do they feel like they have access to power then yeah sure well it's the kennedy thing you know like Kennedy kind of didn't have a, like a good opinion of the press, but he knew how to manipulate them to get them to only report what he wanted to. Like there's that famous story that he got caught. I, I think he got caught having an affair or something by a, by a reporter and like kind of like almost like seduced her into not reporting it by being like, you really want to do this to me? Like, you know what I mean? Like letting, letting like reporters into his inner circle to like to, you know what I mean? Like superficially to make them feel like they were part of it and now they have a stake in it. And, you know, they really haven't learned. Journalists haven't learned in 50 years that that's the case. Like, um, I mean, not, you know, just the, the mainstream ones that want to have that relationship of power anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hi, Jeffrey. That's our um, uh, friend of the uh, the show, hosts a uh, uh, left-wing radio show in New Orleans called Good Morning Comrade. People should check that out. Uh, but... Uh, but hey, I think uh, I think we do want to uh, cut that uh, cut it here for uh, for today. All right, uh, I, the thing that I was going to cover, I'll cover with. Uh, I think it'll be fun to yeah, cover. Yeah, we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll, I think it'll be good for to to do I, that with Adam. I wanted anyway. to cover the, the Lloyd uh, Austin thing where he said that he was going to leave Raytheon, and then they they sold like the first arms sale of the Biden administration was Raytheon. I thought that would yeah. be fun, like fun to cover, but that's like definitely an Emma thing. Yeah, let's do it next week with Emma Vigland. Uh, but uh, so again, Wednesday, uh, me, Forrest, Ryan Lake, uh, and uh, uh, Jason Miles, and Mikey Utrecht uh, will be talking about Robocop. Uh, actually, there is going to be, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, ambiguously tease it now because I'm not sure if it's going to start this week or next week, maybe next week, but um, 
there is uh, there is going to be a, a new series of uh, a Friday live stream starting uh, very soon. Uh, you know that's um, going uh, uh, going to be uh, Philosophy Fridays with somebody who's uh, who uh, who viewers uh, have not seen before, uh, but uh, but they will they will get used to seeing on the uh, on the channel. Uh, please do uh, please do subscribe. Uh, you know, like and subscribe here on YouTube. Please do rate and review wherever you get podcasts. Uh, again, thanks to everybody who uh, hung with us uh, this far. See you on Wednesday for the RoboCop stream. See you maybe on Friday if we do that. See you on Sunday for the Sunday night uh, debate break. Saturday for the for the Fred Hampton stream. Saturday for the Fred Hampton stream. So that's a busy week. Yeah, nobody, uh, nobody's going to have a shortage of GTA in their lives uh, <laughs> this uh, this week. And, uh, and of course, uh, for the main event, uh, back here next Monday, 7.30 Eastern, uh, with uh, the great Emma Vigland. So uh, really appreciate all of you. Let's.